Blog Talk Radio. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond. Love beyond. Your skin. To where you belong.
friend, mama C, mama Sa, mama Africa. Lebon, Lebon, I'm on the banana. When they give come on down, I'm on the RMC. Keep up town, keep up town, this is big town.
and bring in Brother Haki, and we will welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. I'm Haki Kamati Mushoki. And, of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. But I got to tell you, Brother Africa, one of the things that I find extraordinary is that when I, look, I listen to these so-called black conservatives, I'm amazed at the extent they were willing to go in terms of uh, purveying or to or conveying uh, ideas which are totally erroneous, uh, ideas that has nothing to do based on reality, has more a, 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 a reality based upon a class understanding of the world. In other words, a fundamental understanding that by playing the game, they hope to accrue some benefits in terms of being uh, a, a spokesperson for the system at large. So in, in, with that in mind, Brother Africa, I wrote this little bit, and I, I, I thought it was interesting with that, this question in terms of class uh, be discussed a little bit because it's, it's important because in order to have oppression, then you got to have this class division that exists in society. Without the class division in society, then this oppression that people uh, have to endure wouldn't have a basis to stand on. So in event, I want you to check this out. Now, the history of the oppressed uh, response to oppression has always intrigued me. The tendency to embrace injustice by a minority within an oppressed population not only confounds, but rather underscores a clear indication of the lengths some are willing to go to legitimize both their allegiance to systems of, of injustice and their endorsements of state-sanctioned inequalities that undermines both the interests and longevity of the oppressed. In the colonial period of the U.S., resistance to the enslavement of African people were not universally shared by all enslaved Africans. Acceptance of degradation and humiliation of Africans by certain sectors of Africans compared to more enlightened to strategize of freedom of Africans in non-disclosed locations to avoid detection by others who shared an affinity for the oppressor class. In apartheid South Africa, some displayed a preference for the system that routinely subjugated the masses while proclaiming the inferiority of the African masses. Any notion of shared responsibility or the creation of a new paradigm is lost on those convinced apartheid contained material benefits for them, that the suffering of the masses were inconsequential as long as they individually benefited. It took the African masses to employ necklacing to persuade the opportunists among them that pursuit of a more equitable, humane South Africa was in their self-interest. Today, this paradox exists throughout the world. This paradox is abundantly clear in America. Class distinctions has been an intimate feature in American creation and widely understood by many people in American society. In the African community, during the turn of the century, black conservatives, epitomized by individuals like Frederick Douglass, W.B. Du Bois, and Booker T. Washington, advocated different strategies to black empowerment, but the intent among them all was a process of collective empowerment with the understanding equality and justice could never be achieved in the African community if the concerns among the poorest in the African community is not addressed. This philosophical position operated as a mainstay for black thought with relatively few exceptions until the 1960s. During the 60s, black conservative voices were <clears throat> gaining agency, and their, new found, new, excuse me, their newfound influences were anything but organic. Neatly compartmentalized under three headings, these black conservatives came to represent three strands of black conservatism. They were one, the anti-status, or the uh, moderate thinking conservatives. They're much more critical than the rest. The organic conservatives, those who think whose thoughts are guided by morals, religion, or spiritual beliefs, or thoroughly uh, neoconservative. And according to Dr. Angela Lewis, this group <coughs> emerged post-civil rights era. This group opposes social programs because they fear promotes dependency among African people and validates a victim 
oriented mindset. In addition, this group abhors the civil rights gains and the black liberation movements, presumably throughout the world. Ironically, since capitalism is designed to employ the least people possible, unemployment is natural. But our access to how jobs, <coughs> access to jobs, how are the poor, those locked out of the job market survive, a question those black conservatives refuse to answer. The last group of black conservatives, the neoconservatives, were deemed useful in normalizing inequality and in the process of legitimizing racism. For example, in the case of critical race theory, black neoconservatives have been on the out front espousing disinformation about critical race theory, characterizing it as a ploy to make white people feel guilty. Guilty about what? Uh, history is a recollection of events in the past. Unless their argument is past transgressions were committed by people living currently, there should not be any guilt associated with history. Interestingly enough, it is this theme by powerful elites to play down history, which is instructive. By, dis- by dismissing historical atrocities of the past, they are free, free to be repeated without any awareness of the population. Black and new conservatives fit prominently in carrying out this strategy of deception, a strategy formulated centuries ago. Now, during the 60s, Lee Atwater formulated the Southern Strategy. Intending the Southern Strategy was to formulate racism throughout the U.S. and give racism respectability. Not content with politicizing blatant racism, Richard Nixon, former President Nixon, went a step further by, by utilizing class stratification in the African community. The strategy was to create high-status employment opportunities for some Africans, highlight their success, thereby creating a narrative which suggests the abject poverty faced by the overwhelming number of Africans were nearly the result of personal inadequacy. The strategy was successful in creating the perception of black individual economic empowerment as a solution. Economic documents released conveyed some interesting facts at that point in history. Uh, the first was the fastest growing economic group making $75,000 more were black. It further elaborated, the number of black millionaires skyrocketed in the 60s from 25 to 35,000 in 2015 by 2015. Uh, black PhDs, according to the report, median income was slightly higher for Africans than for whites in 2000, by 2004. Uh, black PhDs making 74,207 a uh, year compared to 73,998 for white PhDs. And finally, report concluded, amassing wealth for poor blacks was considerably easier than poor whites uh, amassing wealth. Obviously, statistical manipulation accounts for those improved numbers, but the manner in which the, these numbers were compiled in and of themselves is much to be desired. Starting from the premise, one in 50 black families possibly becoming millionaires pairs in comparison to one in seven families. This is minus economic gain related to projected economic gains earlier enjoyed by elite Africans now find themselves disadvantaged not because they lack education or skill, but because of the marketplace that makes subjective decisions based upon who brings value to the organization. While 35,000 black millionaires sounds impressive relative to 25, the trend, the trend toward improving those numbers have fallen considerably. Currently, statistical estimates of the African millionaires' projection about 1 to 2% of the population may culminate in fewer African millionaires. Just opposed to the economic variables that 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 millionaires insure status are like home ownership, a possession of equity, stocks and bonds, investments, and inheritance, the odds are increasingly becoming more difficult um, for millionaires of millionaire status, particularly as unemployment, corporate downsizing, and corporate debt increases. What once promoted as promising is now re- revealing itself for what it had been all along a ruse. The strategy all along has been to use black conservatives, particularly neoconservatives, voices who discredit civil rights, 
disregard human rights for the poor and the justification of capitalism excesses, which preys on the most vulnerable while providing wealth to the wealthy at unprecedented levels. Now that these milestones have been achieved by the capitalists, black conservatives no longer play a useful niche, utilized only when needed for propaganda purposes. And like poor people, they are too, they too increasingly are becoming targets for the capitalist system that always viewed them as expandable. It's ironic that the animosity by black male conservatives reserved for, for poor Africans and poor people generally is now being directed at black conservatives when they fail to toe the line. So clearly, Brother Africa, this question in terms of class is, is a legitimate question, and nobody would ever negate that. Uh, but the real fact that when you sit there and you listen to it in terms of the kind of exposés coming out of the mouths of African people, it's very, very clear that not only is there a tremendous amount of opportunism, but a tremendous amount of hatred uh, behind those words. So clearly, uh, we have to take into consideration in terms of moving the struggle forward the, the question of class. And so we should be very clear on that point, and for no one to think that, in fact, that we dismiss this question of class when we have these kind of discussions. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki, following Brother Haki. We now will have Brother Anthony. We would like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Following Brother Anthony, we now are bringing Brother Moses and welcome him as well to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. If we don't reverse correct verdicts, I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Um... Women hold up half the sky. That's why I support the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A-E-S. And the struggle is still to overcome the lies and the distortion of the handful of few who have, who have an interest in, in, uh, that is opposed to the masses of the people. And the 1% is, is, has un, 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 unjustifiable wealth, and the socialized production and private appropriation has the end. So this is the struggle, and we look forward to it. Thank you, and thank you for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses. And now we'll go to Sister Eleanor, and we're going to welcome her as well to Africa on the move. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Thank you, Brother Africa. Good evening, everyone. My name is Eleanor Johnson. I am an artist and um, educator. I uh, thank you so much for having me on the show this evening, Brother Africa. And uh, we see that Bolsonaro, President Bolsonaro in Brazil, to being brought to trial at the International Criminal Court. And we just hope that Prosecutor Kareem A.A. A. Khan 
QC will have the support he needs to bring this human rights and echo aside president to justice. Thank you, Brother Africa, and thank you to the listening audience and fellow panelists. And once again, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. Bolsonaro, thank you, Sister, Sister President of Brazil. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You're listening to Brother Africa and Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the calls and take a revolutionary break. And when we come back, we're going to start our first segment of this program, what's going on in your community and what's going on in your world in the community. If you would like to participate during the segment, we welcome you to call in at 323 323- Six seven nine zero eight four one. Please hit one, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So when we come back on that break, we will discuss what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the Move. Chains living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be. Strong to last through my journey, yeah. Last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. 
From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino is the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah.
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa Remove. I'm Brother Africa. This is the 12th day of December 2021. And on this particular day, we want to just give you a little glimpse of this is your history. I just sharing with you that in the year of 1963, on this particular day, Kenya gains independence, as well as G. Grant, Payton, Patton McGuffty, that was in the year 1899, with G. Grant Patton the in 1899. Who would think an African would create a little golf tee that they all use a day to play golf? Understand the African relationship to that particular sport. But anyway, those are just some little brief historical facts about this is your history. Right now, we can go into our first segment, and we invite you, the listening audience, to call in and participate with us by dialing 323-679-0841. We're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community. If you'd like to participate, just hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. So let's get started with this party. Going to you, Brother Hackey, coming back to you, Brother Hackey. What's going on in your world in the community, Brother Hackey? The mic is yours. Well, Brother Africa, you know, the, the annals of corruption in American society is growing leaps and bounds. Uh, for those people who don't think corruption is just in the society, um, we should take note of Mark Meadows. Of course, Mark Meadows is a former chief of staff under Trump. And, you talk, and I just want to talk briefly about his participation in terms of some of the most uh, virile kinds of corruption it took place uh, during the Trump administration. But in any event, according to the House uh, Select Committee, uh, who are holding rep- uh, uh, rep- uh, investigations around January 6th rally, it was reported that Mark um, uh, Meadows spoke with a congressional, a, a co- congressional insider via text about replacing elect- electors on the state level with selected electors in swing states. Now, interesting enough, if you, if you think back in terms of all this turmoil around the election, what he was proposing is during, that, during the time all that turmoil was taking place, he was proposing that what happened was him to select group quietly, go around to swing states, those states which the, the vote was relatively close, and they will replace the, the electors, individuals who actually select the president, to replace them with people who were sympathetic to Trump to make sure Trump wins. Now, if he would have pulled this off, Trump would have been named the, the winner of that election. But this kind of vile kind of corruption clearly uh, speaks to the kinds of uh, desperation or willingness they, they, these people in positions of power are willing to go to flaunt the law. And so we've got to be very, very clear on that in terms, in terms of their propensity. Also, one of the things when we talk about corruption, Brother Africa, when we talk about in terms of Mark Miller's you know, uh, uh, co- uh, co- cooperation or his coordination with uh, outside forces, in particular Amy Kramer, to coordinate the January 6th rally. Now, normally when we think about, you know, people's right to, to, to uh, have these rallies, uh, normally you don't, that doesn't mean that the government has an active role in terms of facilitating these rallies. In fact, the government is a neutral party, and so therefore these kind of events that take place are solely the initiative of, of individual citizens in terms of bringing these events about. But the mere fact that you've got government entities actually giving direction to these kind of rallies, uh, speaks violence in terms of the kind of corruption. But not only are we talking about corruption, but we're talking about the kind of, of kinds of uh, uh, a rally 
and which they understood clearly that the emphasis was on violence. Good that. So there was no if and buts about that. They understood the people they were bringing together were a very volatile group, and they anticipated and they encouraged the kind of the kind of violence uh, that was uh, uh, prominent, you know, during January the rally. So clearly, this kind of collusion uh, is something that people, at least those who say that are concerned about democracy, clearly should be very very concerned about. Now, according to Mark Meadows, he said he's no longer going to uh, uh, cooperate with the Select Committee uh, panel's subpoena. Now, that in and of itself is 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 problematic, you know, from from a legal point of view. But one thing is very, very interesting, though. A couple of things, actually. His lawyers talk about the fact that uh, Mark Meadows was not participating in these in this in, the, in these uh, response to subpoenas because, quote, according to his attorney, the committee uh, is disrespecting Trump's claim of executive privilege. And Brother Africa, I got to tell you, what? Why would you invoke Trump's name? Trump does not dictate legal standing. Trump, Trump has Trump, what Trump thinks has no legal standing. In fact, when you talk about legal precedent, you talk about how laws should be administered. That is the job of the of the courts. And so, for him to invoke uh, uh, Trump's name speaks violence in terms of you know um, a fundamental lack of of lack of. With, uh, respect for the law, the so-called law that they are supposedly here to uphold. Uh, also, he, he the second thing he he talked about the fact that um, his lawyer said the committee were no, has no intention of respecting boundaries concerning positions Trump claims are off limits. Now, when you start talking about the con- committee has no intention of respecting their boundaries concerning questions Trump claims are off limits, uh, legal, just from a legal point of view, brother, after you got to ask yourself, you know, when you, when you start talking about barriers in terms of uh, you know these kind of inquiries, uh, it becomes problematic. Because clearly, when you talk about government inquiries, the whole point is to, is, is to ascertain exactly what transpired. Anytime you start talking about barriers that sort of preclude and make it impossible in terms of the attainment of information that you need to accurately uh, conclude what had actually transpired at that point in time. So this barrier that he's talked about in and of itself is very, very problematic. And I think, you know, one thing you got, you got to ask, you know, so, you know, the, the fact that they keep talking about that, that what Trump thinks is supreme, uh, that what he thinks trumps the law, I think is very, very frightening. And I think so for people who don't understand the nature of um, of, um, of authoritarianism, I think it's very, very clear that we, we got to understand the implications in terms of what this, what this particular lawyer is saying. Now, this, this question in terms of executive privilege, you know, one is, certainly there are some problems in terms of this claim, Mark Meadows' claim of executive privilege. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things is that Mark Meadows is in, he's currently, he recently uh, wrote a book uh, detailing his work within the White House. And as far as executive privilege is concerned, then certainly uh, information contained in that book should have been released if, in fact, he's, uh, he's, if he's espousing executive privilege. But the mere fact that he wrote the book, but then all at the same token, as far as the executive privilege doesn't set well, it makes no sense just from a legal point of view. Also, keep in mind that when you start talking about, you know, his strategy for the, you know, um, you're relying on executive privilege, Mark Meadows, you know, he turned over information vital to the January 6th inquiry without claims of, of executive privilege. So clearly he wants to he wants to, to present certain information and withhold other information as, as perhaps to, to, to curtail or prevent the disclosure of information that, in fact, that shows Trump's involvement in terms of what happened during January the 6th. Also, when we start talking about in terms of the whole question of executive privilege, you know, you know, when it's trying to invoke that 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 privilege, uh, one of the things that you know the committee, uh, the House Select Committee, has access 
to records um, <clears throat> from personal phone calls and email accounts that could be used to provide clarity in terms of what happened on January 6th. Now, the real fact that they have access to this information from the National Archives to disclose a lot of information that is so pertinent to the public in terms of understanding January 6th, the mere fact that they do that, uh, it doesn't have any brand whatsoever in terms of executive privilege. So, again, the question becomes, why are you raising executive privilege when clearly access to information that uh, has something to do with executive privilege? In fact, executive privilege has no, no bearing whatsoever in terms of access to this information that the, that the panel uh, from the House Select Committee could very easily achieve hit from the National Archives. Now, saying this, brother, I've got, I got to point this out because when we talk about corruption, we got to uh, uh, you know, we, we understand that corruption is not simply affiliated with the Republicans; it's also affiliated with Democrats as well. There's one of the suspicious aspects in terms of this, this particular this particular case is that um, the the in back in August, the House Select Committee back in August issued a demand that the telecommunications companies and social media companies asked them to preserve personal communications of hundreds of people involved in the January 6th attack. But check this out, Brother Africa, but they did not ask the companies to turn over records at that time. Uh, clearly, you got to ask yourself, you have access to the information. By, by actually digging into the files of these, these people, you have the, the, the possibility of accessing more information in terms of the people who funded this, oh, this, this, this rally on January 6th. Uh, the millionaires and politicians who were much a part in terms of breaking this 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 this, this movement about. Uh, so in that context, you have an opportunity to provide a lot of clarity in terms of what transpired and the people actually participated in in, in doing so. Uh, but the mere fact that this Democratic panel decided to opt not to prevail themselves to using uh, that information to uh, to find out more about those individuals responsible for January 6th uh, uh, insurrection speaks values in terms of the kind of capacity that exists among the Democratic Party in terms of its unwillingness to actually engage the system in terms of exposing the fundamental uh, injustices and the fundamental corruption that exists in the society. Now, the whole question, Brother Africa, and I close to this, now, one, one of the things, when we talk about the grand strategy behind executive privilege claims, it's very, very interesting because what I alluded to thus far is that a lot of the factors in terms of the, the justification for executive privilege simply doesn't exist. But despite that, they could continue to elevate your know, claims of executive privilege. And that's very, very interesting. I, 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 I suggest uh, that according to Matt Gates, a Republican out of Florida, uh, he recently made a, a speech in terms of his information in terms of how the political, how the political system works. Uh, if we gauge what he has to say, perhaps it's very instructive in terms of what's happening, what's really going on in terms of the strategy in terms of the suit of, of executive privilege. I think one of the things is that um, one of the things by, you know, rallying around executive privilege, one of the things you want to do is that you want to demonize the state as oppressive against right-wingers. In other words, by utilizing executive privilege, you free up people's positions of power, particularly the president, to actually engage in those kind of policies or those kind of laws or those kind of um, activities behind the scenes uh, that uh, protects, not only protects the right-wings, the right-wings, right-wing uh, 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 people in the society, but actually empowers them. And so, therefore, so the executive, executive privilege is successful in terms of as a challenge to the Supreme Court. They clearly, we can anticipate, you know, a lot more, uh, you know, uh, laws are demonizing the system at large, making the system look at, in fact, that it's oppressive and it's, it's, up, and it's actually against right-wingers. In reality, is, is the reality is that they're really against left-wingers, but, but, but they're going to make it appear as though 
that they, they, that they really are, are opposed to right-wing politics. Secondly, I think also um, when we talk about, you know, this whole question in terms of strategy behind executive privilege, according to Matt Gates, the whole question in terms of, you know, the, the authoritarian strain in U.S. politics and its influence over U.S. politics. One of the things, if you've got people in positions of power, and particularly the president, and along with those people who are wealthy, if you've you got a situation where they have the fin- they're the final arbiters in terms of what is right and what is justifiable, what is justifiable, they clearly they're going to do all that they can in their power to make sure that those people on the right uh, get all those things they want. So that means the fundamental um, uh, uh, destruction of, of democracy because it benefits them in terms of their ability to, to gain more power, more press, more wealth and prestige. Then that's what they're going to do. If that means fundamentally, you know, incarcerating mass internment a large number of people, then that's what they're going to do. Because if they deem that in their interest in terms of their survival, then that's precisely what they're going to do. And so the subjective privilege makes all that possible, and we've got to be very, very clear on that point. And lastly, Brother Africa, when we talk about this, this whole strategy behind executive privilege, one of the things that Matt Gage, he talked about the fact that the election, that what he's hoping is that, you know, by elevating this question in terms of executive privilege, that uh, it's, it's going to inspire a lot of people on the right, particularly ultra-nationalists, uh, like Jim Jordan, uh, uh, <clears throat> Margaret Taylor, uh, Paul Gossar, and him, Paul Gossar himself, it's going to create a situation, a narrative where it's, it's possible that more and more people just like them will be elected. Now, of course, when you got these kind of ultra-right-wing right-wing individuals in positions of power, then you can anticipate that's going to be a lot of problems in terms of the rule of law. And so the one of the things that, you know, <clears throat> you know when, you, so when you start talking about corruption, a wrongdoing that fundamentally exists in, in American society based upon capitalist rules, then certainly we can anticipate that when we talk about the rule of law, uh, to the extent that it, that it exists, will be totally eliminated. So clearly we got up, so clearly, you know, the strategy behind executive privilege is much broader than people really think. And I think that one of the things when we talk about the growing authoritarian strain in society, we've had to understand that this is not hyperbole, this is not imaginary. This is happening right in real time, and we have to understand this. When we, when we, so when we look at things like terms of executive privilege, we've got to understand the implications of what they're really saying and what they're really doing, and I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. We now will go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Um, uh, Friday, uh, December 10th, um, mark the anniversary of uh, International Human Rights Day. And in commemoration of that, um, uh, let's see, um, uh, let's see, the, the capitalist uh, heads of government organized a summit on democracy, um, you know, involving uh, involving. Uh, the capitalist countries like Canada, the U.S., Britain, etc., and uh, what was left, uh, what uh, who who uh, uh, the countries that were left out included Russia, uh, China, and uh, let's see, and all the countries struggling to build socialism. And uh, let's see, and uh, to counter this. Uh, there was a, a, a program organized this Saturday called the Summit for Socialist Democracy, 
which was uh which i uh which i listened to and uh it w- and uh there were representatives f- from different socialist uh organizations throughout the world that gave an analysis of the history of the development of socialism and also the history of the development of uh different various forms of democracy throughout history and uh one of the takeaways from that was that um uh was that the US and the other uh uh and the other capitalist countries have no monopoly over the uh, over the term democracy and that uh, and that uh and that a lot of these countries their best bourgeois democracies in other words uh democracy for the uh capitalist ruling class only so to speak and not uh not really whereas as opposed to socialist democracies uh the uh the masses of the working people rule in that society and that was one of the key differences that uh that they pointed out and also that there's more to democracy than be able to, to, to vote in elections on a periodic basis and uh there is a tendency of, of uh among a lot of people inside the US to limit democracy to being able to 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 uh uh you know to to participate in elections on a periodic basis either every uh two to approximately five years or so depending upon the country you're talking about and uh you know and uh it was a very interesting analysis of uh of uh how uh socialism is practiced in different countries that are struggling to build socialism and how uh and it was an interesting analysis of the history of uh, uh, uh of uh democracies um uh, you know historically and how they developed from different uh societal structures such as feudalisms uh uh capitalism social, scientific socialism etc and uh it was very interesting uh and very informative for those people who might have a lot of confusion about what democracy is and I highly re- recommend uh for people that are interested uh to check it out and uh this was a counter to the uh media, the, the summit that Biden had tried to organize on Friday in commemoration of uh International Human Rights Day. Uh, thank you, Brother Anthony. But before we go to our next presenter, Brother Anthony, I would like to add maybe a little bit to your point of this question on December tenth that was a Celebration and recognition of this question of human rights day, Declaration of Human Rights. You know, out of all the countries that signed that declaration that came out of the UN back in forty eight, US was was one of those that did not sign it. So I find that very hypocritical. And when you look at this 
these articles that make up the Declaration of Human Rights, one of the things you'll find is that these articles are articles to reflect the, 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 the essence of what you need in order to exist as human beings. So basic necessities such as the right to have education, the right to have housing, the right to um, um, be able to speak speedily, the right not to be treated as a slave or, or, or imprisonment. I mean, it's really interesting when you look at just the basic things that make up this Declaration of Human Rights. And most of the time, when we look at these these um, these so-called rights, we group them in a concept that we call civil rights, when in fact they are human rights. These are just rights that human beings are innately born with. And I find it I agree with you, brother. I agree with you, brother Africa. You're you're correct. And the thing about it, though, and the thing about it, though, when uh, when 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 the struggle is limited to civil rights, that precludes uh, other countries from intervening. And uh, as Malcolm X pointed out, uh, some uh, 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 over fifty years ago. That when uh, when you limit the uh, you know the uh, the uh, you know our struggle to just civil rights, that means that other countries can't get involved because civil rights is basically a domestic issue, whereas uh, human rights uh, those are uh, those are recognized as universal. And that, uh, and that if uh, you know, and if the U.S. is ca- uh, is accused of uh, violating human rights of uh, you know of uh, certain sectors of of the population, then other countries can get involved. And that is why a lot of times you don't see, uh, you don't hear much about other countries saying anything about. Uh, the U.S. the U.S. Uh, violation of human rights of indigenous and African peoples. Yeah, I think that's something that oppressed people, in particular Africans, need to take a look at in terms of how they frame their struggles and their issues, because this is, it is a question of how you um the game that is played politically in terms of how things are perceived, and most of the things that are happening to. African people, oppressed people, particularly coming from the West, led by the U.S., and their policies are violations of human rights, just outright violations of human rights. So that's something I think people need to pay more close attention to and look at this question of this issue of human rights versus civil rights and what it means to our well-being and our ability to move forward as we articulate our struggles and and, and our opposition to the treatment that Africans and other oppressed people are receiving throughout the world. So I just thought that was interesting a little tidbit when you raised the issue and talk about on December 10th, the question of Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, one could even argue that the U.S. position to that was that they increase and amplify the concept of genocide. They see their human rights in terms of, of, in terms of creating policies of, 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 of genocide. Uh, they've been trying all kind of ways and techniques to exterminate, get rid of, eliminate groups of people based upon their colors, based upon you know, many factors. And um, 
And one of the major tools they seem to be that they are using today to deal with whole groupings of people as a nation is the tool of um, embargoes and blockades. And I just like to um, just mention this to the audience. When you look at U.S. policy when it comes to this question of genocide and how they are using this concept they call blockades to keep people or nations from being able to trade freely and function freely is that um, here are some of the countries where they have applied or currently applied this whole process of blockades to. You got the Baltics. You got Burma. You got Central African Republic. You have Cuba. You have Democratic Republic of Congo. You have Hong Kong, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Libya, Mali, Nicaragua, North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, Russia, Venezuela, Yemen, Zimbabwe. Those are just mentioned a few. So we can see when you look at their practice and their policies, they definitely have no respect for people human rights. So I just thought I'd add that little piece to, to your discussion, Brother Anthony. Yeah, thank you for adding that. And I want to point out that block blockade is a for, is a, is economic warfare. They want to uh, add that in there. That is a form of of warfare, but using economics instead of weapons. And we are all in agreement with that. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your report on what's going on in your world. And the community, and we now we make our transition to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses. Yes, um, I just want to add to what you are saying. Um, the struggle is for a new democracy, a uh, uh, democracy that includes that's, that's basically socialism, but but uh, it's a new democratic revolution. Um, meanwhile, um, I guess the Supreme Court didn't act, and um, this this um, cho- pro-choice thing is in the air again um, in terms of of uh, Roe versus Wade, and they they didn't uphold Roe versus Wade. Um, also, there's been a tornado down in in uh, the South, in Tennessee, Kentucky, several about five or six states there, and uh, it's really devastated that. And certainly, our hopes and our thoughts and prayers go out to those people. Um, meanwhile, what else? Um, Gloria Lariva of the Party for Socialism and Liberation is is uh, in um, Louisiana with the, with the prisoner uh, strike that's going on down there. I know I got information about that. Uh, that seems to be a pretty good good move uh, to support the prisoner strikes. Um, I'll, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. I'm going to make our transition now to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Um, good evening, uh, listening audience, Brother Africa and panelists. As Brother Moses said, um, the Supreme Court failed to um, hold up Roe versus Wade. 
what it did was in effect said that uh, clinics, uh, abortion clinics could sue if they wished, and they narrowed it to four areas where they could sue, which in effect left the September 1 Texas law as well as the situation in Mississippi, Dobbs versus Mississippi is what they heard standing. Uh, we see that, um, I saw that Letitia James, the New York State Attorney General, planned to subpoena Donald Trump about his business dealings. And, uh, you know, keep in mind, New York City became the largest city in the United States to let uh, non-citizens who are legal residents vote, legal residents vote in local elections. Uh, as uh, Brother Haki said, the federal court rejected Donald Trump's attempt to keep documents related to June 6th hidden from Congress. Um, we, we're going to see where that goes. You can see anyone with money behind them can uh, keep things tied up in court, even when they're frivolous. We also see that... Um, United States is greatly divided. Uh, Fox News continues to put out misinformation, disinformation concerning uh, the virus and voting and voter rights. And uh, you see uh, the senator um, from uh, Kansas, uh, Senator Marshall, uh, talking about uh, trying to improve voters' rights by uh, increasing uh, the restrictions and requirements to vote. So we see ourselves threatened and taking steps backwards, as we have seen 30 states, 37 states do with these new voter suppression laws. Um, in addition, uh, a young football player at 33 years old um, passed away, and uh, uh, that's that's uh i i don't know much about it brother africa uh he played for the Dem denver broncos uh he was a former wide receiver and uh his name is uh i think it's Demaris thomas and we also see That's that the shackler yes and, and and he worked uh for the nfl uh, for 10 seasons, the Denver Broncos, and uh, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family. Um, in addition, Brother Africa, we see that the Shackler family uh, is planning on taking their names off of, uh, removing the names of the Shackler family from uh, several um, museums or several galleries. Uh, as you know, they made a fortune on opioids in this country. And uh, so we're waiting to see whether or not the Shackler Museum of African and Asian Art at the Smithsonian will continue to carry that name. And I just want to say that that's just the Letitia James, the New York State Attorney General, is one African on the move in that she is intending, once again, as I said, planning to subpoena Donald Trump about his business dealings. And uh, we see this misinformation, disinformation having a profound effect on the consciousness 
of, uh, uh, of Americans in that uh, when you're only discussing uh, mis- disinformation concerning elections and also concerning a pandemic, it leaves people uh, widely divided. And uh, in terms of the pandemic we see in Afghanistan, there's a shortage of uh, of uh, vaccines uh, available, whereas in Zambia, there's uh, more likely to be vaccine hesitancy or uh, an inability to distribute. And syringes continue to be a problem. And as the panelists talked about, these embargoes and these sanctions against peoples of the world um, does, it is a form of genocide because it is economic warfare and we keep people from getting basic things like medical supplies, food, fuel. And I really appreciate your comments concerning Human Rights Day because Biden did speak about it at Dole's funeral. And democracies not only uh, exist in the West, but we certainly should include Venezuela, Honduras, Cuba, and uh, Nicaragua, just to name a few, whom, you know, Nicaragua and Honduras had recent elections, and they were very successful. And uh, Africans, as well as indigenous people in Nicaragua, had massive turnout. So you can see the people are being organized, and, and that's a great thing. So I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. And the uh, deaths in the United States from uh, the virus are on an increase, but we seem to be keeping that from people. And uh, we've made wearing masks, hand sanitation, uh vaccination a political issue and uh that's really unfortunate and all of us uh africans in america should certainly uh have concern over our treatment uh in terms of medical treatment because of the genocide and the medical experiments such as the tuskegee situation decades ago have had on the african psyche in America. So with that, I just want to thank you for allowing me to participate. And human rights, housing, education, access to food, uh, air and water, these are basic human rights. And the United States didn't sign because we were, at in 1948, a major violator of basic human rights of African people, as we all, many of us call ourselves, African-Americans, of indigenous people, and other minorities, as well as the working poor. So with that in mind, thank you so much, Brother Africa, and uh, thank you so much, Brother Akeem, Brother Anthony, you, Brother Africa, and Brother Moses, for opening this evening's program with such informative information. Thank you. And to add to to your point, Eleanor, I think from America's inception, it was a violation of human rights. It fell upon the the, the, the genocidal 
process of inducing people and enslaving uh, African people. You know, it started out with, with that as a foundation for injustices. So anyway, that's American history. That's so Let's true. move forward. Yes, brother. Let's, brother Africa, I'd like let to me, add, that's so true for the Americas that it started out with genocide and atrocities. Oftentimes people say the United States of America is an immigrant country. Well, so is El Salvador. So is Chile. So is Canada. What are we talking about? Our whole concept of democracy had been learned from the indigenous people of the Americas. It wasn't a phenomena that we knew in from Europe. They had kings and queens and uh uh, it, 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 we do not acknowledge the con- contribution of world citizens from backgrounds other than Western uh, accepted history to be recognized. So increasingly, uh, if we can fight disinformation and continue to educate the public, we'll see this change. And as you often say, and uh, Brother Haki and uh, Brother Moses and Anthony. Yes, organization is the key. And I think we'll discuss organizations that um, remain strong from from university to grave in this evening's program. Thank you, Brother Africa. Okay, I think we have a caller that's been waiting patiently. I believe this caller has something to say in terms of what's going on now with the community. We can come to you now, call Your last four numbers are 9072, 9072. Uh, the mic is yours, 9072. Any questions or comments? Good evening, Brother Africa and panel. My name is Mimi. I'm calling to tell you something that happened in my world. I was on the way to Mass today. I get up to the avenue. I see, I see six police cars holding up traffic, trying to intimidate these homeless people who don't have nowhere to go so that the police and the individuals get into a dialogue. I don't know what the dialogue was about, and I don't know what the gentleman said to the man that caused the police to tell him he under arrest and locked the man up. And I said, now what in the world is going on? So the lady saw his girlfriend coming across the street, and she says to her, why did they lock your boyfriend up? She said, because... They exercising their authority. I didn't feel that was right. It was about seven homeless people all out there together congregating. What the dispute was about, what the police interpretation of what the man was saying back and forth in their dialogue, it was just uncalled for. And you don't need no six police for one person. That's, that's ironic. But anyway... I just thought I would share what's happening in my world and how disturbed I was to see this going on, especially on Sunday when 
there's other things that's going on in this city that's more outstanding than harassing homeless people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, Brother Africa, I thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you, panel members, also. Peace and love. Peace and love back to you, my sister. We thank you for sharing what's going on in your world community. And I would just like to say what you saw is something that uh, is not unusual. It's going on to our people, and people are weak and vulnerable all over the world. This is what they do. And um, unfortunately, it will continue to do that until we get organized. Um, but anyway, Carla, thank you. And Brother Haki, we can come back to you. Some of the things you might have heard mentioned just now, you might want to respond to, or do you have any final comments before we go in that segment today, today to deal with our theme? What are they doing? Damn. Any additional thoughts you'd like to make, Brother Haki, or add to? Yeah. Yeah, well, with respect to the U.S. Uh, not being a signatory of the human rights uh, back in 1948, I think it's important, Brother African, you underscore that, but it's important people understand that you, there's an inconsistency between capitalism and human rights. You can't have an ex- a manifestation of capitalism and human rights because the two are diametrically opposed to one another. In other words, in the context of capitalism, it's all about individual freedoms, where in the context of capitalism, individual, individual treatments translate your ability to, to, to own, your ability to buy, your ability to control. Well, in the context of human rights, it presupposes that in order to bring about a more just society that you have to give up this question in terms of ownership, this question in terms of control, and this, this question in terms of domination. Uh, so the two are in conflict with one another. And so therefore, so when we talk about something like uh, a, 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 a voter's right, the reason why, you know, um, is the federal government doesn't get involved in that because human rights is not, is, is country's not, the country's not signatory to human rights. In other words, if in fact it was a signatory to human rights, the federal government will mandate that you would not utilize voter suppression for the total purpose of keeping people from voting. But because it's not, it's not guided by human rights, those kind of practices are justified. Because under capitalism, if you can keep those people who, quote, unquote, who are non-essential, if you can keep them from voting, then that is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It keeps those people in positions, those people who have power, keeps them in a position because the people who could vote, potentially vote them out are not given that possibility to do so. So clearly we got to understand there is a real distinction. And secondly, Brother Africa, I think when we talk about the, the origin of the Constitution and we talk about democratic being uh, uh, truly dem- democratic, the Iroquois people of America were truly, in the, uh, truly democratic. And this is where the whole United States is a question in terms of constitution. They get it from the Iroquois people, right? The, the indigenous people right here in America, the Iroquois. And this is where they get that concept from, which was truly a democratic institution, which all was all about human rights, which there, there was no vacillation. It was very clear in terms of, you know, your right in terms of, as a human being, those things that are important to you. So when you talk about things like food, education, shelter, those things were respected and those things were honored. And in fact, there's systems that made those things come into being. So clearly we got to understand this when we talk about in the context of capitalism and people look at all these injustices, all these tragedies that keep the sister talk about the police uh, 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 harassing, you know, homeless people. Well, keep in mind, uh, in the context of capitalism, those homeless people represent uh, the ills of society. In that context, not only are they powerless, but also uh, they have no value. And that is the direct, that directly flows from the philosophical constructs 
of capitalism, which says that nobody has any value unless you got ownership in, 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 in capital or money. So clearly, Brother Africa, all of these problems are, are, are a reflection of the capitalist system. And at some point, people going, people around the world, people are beginning to understand that. At some point, increasingly, more and more people in America will begin to understand that reality. In fact, people are beginning to understand the reality, which is the reason why the country is becoming more repressive, because they do understand that people are beginning to understand that they've been duped, that what they, what they profess to be about in terms of democracy uh, has no relation whatsoever in terms of how capitalism actually works. And so, therefore, nobody should be surprised that you is not a signatory to human rights, because in order, in order for it to practice capitalism, human rights simply can't be, it can't afford to utilize human rights. It simply can't happen. So clearly, Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. Um, Brother Anthony is absolutely correct. Uh, this is one of the fundamental problems in terms of you know, when we talk about all these all this, all this problems that manifest in society, we actually say, why does all this stuff exist? Well, it, it exists because you've got a system in place to make damn sure that this exists because it certainly interests those who have capital, those who have property. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, that's not going to change unless people organize and work to change that. It's that simple. Hi, thank you for the comments, Brother Haki. This is Africa Armu, Brother Africa. We're in the seat and we're going to take the heat as we define it. We're going to stand behind it. We're going to a revolutionary break, and when we come back, we're going to start our dialogue on what are they doing? Damn. This is Africa Armu, and to our brothers and sisters in Southern Africa, we are still fighting for our freedom, and we haven't forgotten you. This one is for you.
of why and daddy-o do a crime, end up in jail, and gotta go. Cause you could do crime and get paid today, and tomorrow you're behind bars in the worst way. Far from your family, cause you're locked away. Now tell me, do you really think crime pays? You on taking what your brother has? You little sucker. You talking all that jazz. It's time to stand together in a unity. Cause if not, then you're with soon to be self-destroyed, unemployed. C-Rack will be lost without a trace. Or a clue but what to do is stop the violence and kick the science down the road that we call eternity where knowledge is formed and you learn to be self-sufficient independent to teach the east is what rap intended but society wants to invade so do not walk this path that they laid it Neocolonialism, 
Zionism, all systems that oppress human beings. Once that happens, you have very little, if any, self-destruction. And definitely, this is another reason why we need our human rights. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. I'm Brother Africa. We're in the seat, and we're going to take the heat. We're going to find him. We're going to stand behind him. We're going to speak to the powerless and the powerful. Right now, we're going to continue our part two of what are they doing, damn, with our political panelists and analysts. If you have any views or comments, please feel free to call in and participate by dialing 323-679-0841. But before we go into discussion, I'd like to make a quick announcement, a couple quick announcements, and one is that We'd like to remind everyone who is interested in going on the Freedom Ride to Cuba with us, make sure you contact African Awareness Association by emailing them at African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com, or you can go to their website, which is www.aaa-cuba.com. The tour will be from July 23rd to 31st. So let's go on the feet ride. Let's show our father and support our brothers and sisters in Cuba and learn from the Cuban Revolution. That's number one. The second announcement we'd like to share with you is that Pan African Roots just released a book, a volume, two volume book, that we think is very important for African people to um, have in their library. All people want to know about history and want to know about uh, this old question of um, crimes against humanity, particularly as it relates to Africa and African people. We'd like to encourage you to call, to go to the website www.a-aprp.gc.org, go to their website and check out their book and publish it by the author Bob Brown in his title, we demand the full disclosure and dignization of all slavery era records. That is a book that should be a part of your library. So please act and go to the website to find out more about this book and how you can publish, how you can um, um, purchase it. The website again is www.a-aprp.gc.org. Those are our announcements for the day. At this one time, we go to our political panelists and analysts. And we want to direct your attention to this article. If you get a chance, um, those who haven't seen the article, please Google the article titles, Kenya, South African President's Urge Cases. Kenya, South African President Urge Ceasefire in Ethiopia. Kenya, South African President's Urge Ceasefire in Ethiopia. It's a real interesting article because it points out uh, many issues and concerns as it relates to Africa and African unity. And we're going to talk a little bit about this, and I would like to start with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, I found it real interesting when I read this article. The two principal players, South Africa, Azamia slash South Africa, and you also have Kenya. You have two presidents, both of them biologically are Africans. Uh, biologically speaking, and uh, they're talking about the issue of crisis going on in Ethiopia and in Eritrea. And um, I thought it really interesting, and it definitely pointed out 
the need and importance for the unification unity of Africa. What did you take from that article, Brother Anthony? Well, I I I think uh, the the biggest takeaway from that article is the vulnerability that Africa that Africa in its disunited has uh, disunited Africa has to destabilization by uh, by forces outside of Africa, and uh, and actually this uh, conflict is being encouraged. Uh, by uh, by the uh, Tigrayan uh, Liberation fr- Front, which is uh, which has been uh, been a, a, a allied to to, to 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 U.S. forces for decades, and uh, and that's what's causing uh, the conflict. And uh, and uh, Africa in its disunited state uh, seems to be uh, incapable of uh, solving uh, conflicts that take place among African countries themselves, let alone defend themselves against uh, you know foreign intervention. Uh, the invasion of Libya is a case in point. And uh, and uh, and I think it uh, and I think uh, you know the the political unification that Nkrumah and other Pan Africanists such as Modibo Keita, Secretary, and others fought for uh, decades ago. Uh, you know, there's a there's a, a greater need for that now than there ever has been. Uh, because uh, the forces of imperialism, in all of its manifestations, are 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 are, are trying to seize and re- and recolonize Africa. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, contradiction in the article I thought that was interesting. You can speak to it and others that you may have seen or have gotten from the article is that the acting children, the, the, the forces that initiated and started the aggression, they are asking Ethiopia in trend to negotiate with a minority set of people who make up less than 6% of the population. Even though there has been an agreement between, particularly Ethiopia and trend, to uh, have peaceful means coexist and, and function as, as a unit. What do you make of U.S. putting pressure on those who was not the aggressor to force them to give up their sovereignty to a minority sector of the people of that population? Now, that's what I'm saying. When African people continue to complain, complain about their oppression here, that they want their own nation or if they ask for support for somebody on the outside, come inside, they would say people is interfering now and turn to fail. What do you make of that or your position as relates to this phenomenon, Brother Haki? Brother Africa, it's, 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 it's an old game. Uh, when we talk in context of U.S. self-interest, let's be very, very clear. There's nothing logical about it. It has something to do with logic. It has to do with power and control and manipulation. So the mere fact that they're going to attempt to, to disregard the peace agreements that were signed by uh, by the uh, 
by the ruling party uh, of the uh, Eritreans along with the Tigray. Big balance in terms of uh, U.S. desire to uh, to implement uh, a, a, a narrative, which is to their benefit. Namely, is that you know by you know by putting pressure on the ruling government, it makes it possible, uh, you know, at some point for the Tigray to 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 to, to um, perhaps share power, make it more easier for the U.S. to manipulate Tigray leaders for the sole purpose of benefiting uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, the U.S. Now, one of the things when we talk about these trade agreements that exist between um, Ethiopia and the U.S., one of the things is very, very clear. None of those trade agreements has anything to do in terms of, has to do with terms of economic empowerment of, of Ethiopian economy. What it does is create a market for U.S. goods. Now, those goods that are coming out of Ethiopia are not valued based upon uh, a, 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 a objective uh, value in terms of what those resources are worth. They are based upon what U.S. thinks they are worth. So in that context, even though there's some trade being taken place, the actually kind of value uh, that's being uh, associated with those commodities are not close to what it should be in terms of equitable prices. Uh, so clearly, uh, if you have a situation where you have people in power like the Tigray, uh, not to put down you know, all the brothers and sisters in the Tigray, but the mere fact that you have that element in the, in the Tigray community who are willing to play ball with the U.S., that the kind of economic um, rape you know, uh, Ethiopian economy is going to exacerbate. It's going to become worse and worse and worse. In other words, the United States is going to benefit more and more and more from, from unequal trade. So clearly the Ethiopian government, the willingness to stand up and to at least fight uh, for, you know, some, uh, some semblance of parity when it comes to trade is commendable, and uh, certainly they should be supported for that. But when you keep it, we have to understand that whenever the U.S. acts, it's never because it's out of honesty. It's never out of fairness. It's not out of justice. It's all about what is the self-interest of, of the U.S. In particular, what is the interest of the U.S. capitalists, always, or Western capitalists generally, always. And so nobody should be surprised that they should, they're going to form in some kind of strategy in terms of dividing the Tigray from the Oromo uh, in terms of facilitating as much chaos as possible to, automat- to ultimately to destabilize that whole country. And uh, Ethiopia has the potential to be a, a, a dynamic country, but it can't do that in isolation. Ethiopia has to work with other African states in order to, to fulfill its destiny. Uh, but the U.S. understands that. So as long as they can keep Ethiopian, you know, Ethiopians within Ethiopia fighting each other, uh, then it's all the better for a term for U.S. foreign policy. But one thing, so let me just interject real quickly. I have to, I have to put this in here, Brother Africa, because it's important. Uh, one of the things you know, when we talk about the, the, the you know uh, the Kenyan Uhuru Kenyatta, president of Kenya, and Ramaphosa of South Africa, when we talk about their involvement in terms of or at least their concern, professed concern in terms of what's going on in Ethiopia, I find that hypocritical because if you look at if if you look at in terms of the same kind of situation as it, as it exists in Kenya, and specifically when you start talking about Kenya intervention into Somalia. Then what happened to all this logic about let's put an end to all this fighting? Uh, it seems to me Kenya's being used to destabilize Somalia, and yet the president of Kenya is doing nothing in terms of putting an end to that kind of destabilization and allow Somalia to work out for themselves what kind of government they want. So clearly, uh, you know, uh, so we talk about so so we talk about interest. Uh, it's not simply it's not simply uh, so we talk about U.S. interest. We have to understand that, unfortunately, a lot of these Africans also have uh, the U.S. interest at heart, and we're willing to play ball, even if that means uh, the destabilization of their society and other African states, and that's unfortunate. 
Also, when we talk about their intervention in terms of what's going on in Ethiopia, both, both governments refuse to address the colonial structures that exist in the world. When you talk about the unfound trading practice, when you talk about the IMF, the World Bank, in terms of how they fund uh, economic activity, how they dictate economic activity to African states, why are the same leaders who are so adamant about what's going on in Ethiopia, why are they not talking about those kind of discrepancies, those kind of uh, injustices being inflicted upon African states throughout the African continent? They're very silent on that. And the reason being is because, unfortunately, they, it's, it's easier for them to, to highlight Ethiopia and to sort of uh, uh, take the position that somehow the problems in Ethiopia are unique as opposed to understanding that the problems in Ethiopia are typically the African experience. So all African states at some point go through that when we talk about destabilization efforts. And so when we talk about the U.S. and the Western nations, uh, you know, uh, designs, political designs to strategically destabilize Africa, we got to understand that African leaders play an intimate part in terms of making that destabilization of Africa possible. So why aren't these African leaders talking about that? And one last thing about Africa. With respect to Kenyan, I love Kenyan. I, I, I love the Kenyan people, man. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm sort of partial. Um, you, know, uh, I, you know, of all the African states I've visited, I visit Kenya the most, and I love the African people. I love all of them. I love the, the Kikuyus. I love the Lao, the Lul. You know, I love the Kalajin. I know all of the people in, in Kenya. They're beautiful people. And there was a situation, you know, about 20 years ago in which there was a question around Majimboism. The whole point was that there was a term of actually breaking up Kenya in terms of regional uh, countries uh, to reflect the uh, tribal uh, densities of the populations. That was rejected, and that was a good thing. They rejected that. But the point is that uh, uh, even though they moved to reject that kind of um, discrimination uh, or that kind of potentially kind of discrimination based upon tribe, uh, the mere fact that the government, the ruling government, uh, you know, of Kenya have done nothing in terms of addressing the ills that inflict particular, particular parts of the country where it's related to particular tribal groupings. And so that's, that's problematic. So if so President Uhuru, uh, is, Kenyatta Uhuru, is really concerned about the plight of, 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 of Africa, then he, he, he would be, uh, uh, it would be very, um, it would very, uh, it'd be a good idea if he would actually address the issues as they pertain to Kenya and all the kind of pressing issues that are, that are happening in Kenya, which helps which prevents Kenya from becoming the powerhouse that it's capable of becoming. Um, but anyway, Brother Africa, I'll close with that because I'll be, I'll be talking all night, but I'll, I'll close with that. Hi, Sister Eleanor. What did you take from this article, Sister Eleanor? What is your take on this article? Well, um, I... Uh, found it uh interesting the the trade uh, uh one of the things I found most interesting was the fifty million dollars worth of goods shipped from South Africa to Kenya in twenty twenty compared to imports about twenty two million to South Africa. But more importantly, it was that uh as Brother Haki said President Kenyatta and uh, South African President Cecil Ramaphosa are at least addressing the issue of a negotiated ceasefire. And I think part of any nation exercising its sovereignty 
is that they be allowed to address internal issues as internal problems as a part of their sovereignty. And we see from this article the importance of a united Africa in economic and social development. Um, The article also touched on uh, bomb bomb attacks in uh, Kampala, Uganda, as well as discussing Boko Boko, uh, Haram and Shaba in in Somali. But again, Somalia was underdeveloped for the last three decades by the West because of its independence and concern with its own independence and development. And uh, I found it interesting that this meeting occurred in late November when the travel bans affecting other South African nations such as Mozambique and other countries was not addressed and uh, nor was the issue of uh, the pandemic and the fact that many African nations have asked that vaccines no longer be delivered until they can find a way to distribute and have the resources such as uh, people power on the ground as well as uh, syringes and other medical supplies to distribute the vaccine. And uh, the fact that they didn't discuss Omicron, uh, a strand of the virus that seems to have first arisen in South Africa and has quickly affected 25 other countries, and what impact having such a high incident of HIV in South Africa that may have on the way the virus has mutated. So there are many factors, and I, I and the, I guess the main focus, since the main focus was the meeting in Pretoria, South Africa, of two presidents, that uh, it was mostly important that they suggested a negotiation, taking a diplomacy rather than sanctions. As you said, Brother Africa and the other analysts earlier, embargoes and sanctions, they don't affect leaders in government as much as they affect the people. And so as we see uh, famine into gray, and we have to also look, and I thought about the fact that the United States has the largest group of Ethiopians outside of Addis Ababa and they live in the District of Columbia and L.A. And the many to gray, we go back to capitalism and neo-colonialism. Sometimes our brothers and sisters may only be interested in their economic security and their individual concerns. And it's unfortunate that Washington depends on capitalists to communicate with government as to what our policy should be 
And that's clearly demonstrated by the position that President Biden has taken. And uh, more and more uh, we realize why there has to be a strong separation of government and these billionaires. They become part of the problem. And these and these rich people who uh, share their opinions with our leaders. And uh, I'd like to share something else. Brother Haki talked about Taylor Greene. It's important to know that Taylor Greene is a QAnon, and that's a cult that's developing in the United States. This information and lack of education is having a tremendous impact. It's finally hit the House and may soon hit the Senate. So with that in mind, um, I, I still think that Ethiopia and, all, and sovereignty of nations is important, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's uh, Ethiopia, whether it's Nicaragua, we must, as world citizens, recognize the importance of sovereignty of nations as, as supporters of human rights. So I, I thought it was great that they they weren't interested in sanctions or military solution to the Ethiopian problem. Brother Moses? What's your take on this article, Brother Moses? Are you with us, Brother Moses? I think we have some issue with. Let me see if we can get his mic on. Uh, Mike, Brother Moses, we got you now. Yeah. Come in. Yeah. We can hear you now. Go ahead, Brother Moses. What's your thoughts yeah, on the article? These these forces, these terrorist forces, uh, supported by the U.S., uh, uh, having a, a disruptive effect on the on the political economy of of that of that part of the globe, and um, and it's rightfully these these two presidents have come together trying to uh, to bring about peace, uh, and uh, you know we as in the U.S. should 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 um, try to get uh, uh, Biden to uh, come off his high horse and uh, and uh, and recognize that the Turkey, uh have been in power and and uh, and uh, are not oppressed oppressed uh, as as they would have us to believe. Uh, uh, I. I that article was was uh was basically about that uh and um I don't I don't have much to add to it at this point. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Rose. Brother Anthony, before we go on to our next article, I would like to give maybe your response in, in reference to when you read this article a couple of things may have came to mind. One is the maybe the lack of or weaknesses of the OAU as relates to these types of problems. And two, 
one would have to think about the impact of neocolonialism. When you have two African heads of states and many people say their realities probably fit more under a neocolonialist uh, makeup, how does it put them in a position to bring about any true changes for the interests of Africa? I just wonder what would be your response to that. Well, actually, I think I think it's significant that uh, that two African states, even though uh, even though they're suffering from neocolonial domination, are are at least trying to uh, to, to trying to work out a negotiated su- uh, settlement to that problem. Uh, you know, it, it, it's inadequate. I mean, the ultimate solution is for uh, is for Africa to unite so that it's not, uh, you know, so that this sort of, uh, so that these foreign interventions that stir up differences among Africans can be prevented. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but, uh, you know, almost all of Africa is under neocolonial domination now. Uh, especially and under destabilization attempts, uh, thanks to the uh, uh, to, uh, to the invasion of Libya, which was done under uh, 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 under uh, Obama's administration, and uh, and uh, uh, you know it was rather ironic that it was under. Uh, 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 under an African, uh, 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 under uh, a, a U.S. president that was of African descent, that this occurred, but that is the nature. But that is the ultimate uh, implication of a neocolonial situation, and uh, we're in a situation with in which the enemy manifests it, 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 itself to look like us. And, uh, you know, it's a very dangerous situation, and it's a lot harder to find, uh, the, 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 and it's a lot more insidious than uh, direct colonialism. And in uh, the fact that the uh, that enemy primarily manifests itself into looking like uh, us. And, uh, you know, and that is, uh, you know, and it's, uh, and it makes it a lot harder to fight against, but it become it brings into relief, uh, the class struggle that exists in the African community, uh, at all levels, uh, internationally on the continent and in the diaspora. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's my uh, that's my take on it. Uh, it's a manifestation of uh, neo uh, of uh, neocolonialism. The fact that uh, that uh, that Africans uh, are having a hard time getting together to resolve their issues. Okay, let's move on to our next article for tonight. When we talk about what are they doing, you said, "Damn, you know." When we look at the institution of sports inside of in, inside of America, and that was an article that came out that's titled "Report: Alice Use of Tommy Reed Has Been Revealed." 
And Tom Marie is a assistant football coach for this university called University of Notre Dame. A well, well known, very elitist, powerful uh, European institution with an average background. And they released how much money this particular system coach may be receiving from another school that's from Louisiana State University to come and be a system coach for that team of $400,000, a $400,000 raise for him to transfer from University of Notre Dame to Louisiana State University. Now, what we're talking about in this case, when we look at this article, I'd like to get your response, obviously, Brother Ake. This question between the relationship between sports, money, and the institution of, of, of slavery. Because it's really interesting is one school is willing to pay this one assistant additional $400,000 to come and be an assistant coach with them at the expense of all of these African ballplayers who are making millions of dollars of these, millions of dollars of these institutions. And economically, they are gaining very little, if anything. It seems like a slave-master relationship where the ball players are enslaved and the coaches are the masters and benefit from that label. Now, on top of that, it's real interesting because one assistant coach that coordinate that defense is an African coach. Now, they didn't release how much money they're willing to pay him, but they did release the amount of money they're willing to give the European assistant offensive coach. So you see some, hypo, um, some, some hypocrisy in terms of just how this article is written, in terms of how these individual coaches are making money off these ball players. Two, how they present certain information with the divide coaches among or between each other. They mentioned how much they're willing to pay the European coach, Tommy Reese, but not the brother who had the offense court, who was the defense coordinator for Notre Dame. Thought that was a real interesting dynamic in terms of the way that article was written. What you took from the article, Brother Hackey? Uh, Brother Africa, I, you know, it, 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 I don't know how you can characterize um, the college um, sports arena anything other than a slave institution. I mean, it's very, very clear. When you saw the thing about the people who actually generate money uh, for the university, it's the college students. I mean, it's the athletes themselves. And the mere fact that you're going to pay this coach uh, from one university to go to another university and give, them, give him $400,000 is a real insult. Particularly when you, when you start thinking about in terms of the needs of the athletes. And a lot of these athletes have spent a lifetime focused on athletics, not necessarily academics. And so, therefore, that kind of $400,000 could certainly be used in terms of making sure that these athletes have the kind of uh, tutors, the kind of things they need to have, I mean, a, a real, I mean, a realistic uh, college experience and make sure when they leave that university, they actually have some marketable skills. But clearly, because it's, you know, because, um, you know, it's a slave institution, uh, the focus on the athletes is not really of concern. And because these athletes, when we talk about football and basketball, are disproportionately African Africans, uh, it's become even less of a concern in terms of this kind of this kind of a disparity when it comes to, you know, financing coaches' large some sums of money. Uh, one thing, brother, after you know, um, you know, when you talk about this question in terms of sports, uh, sports, 
exports money and slavery. Uh, you know, I'm 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 for the fact, you know, uh, you know, when you when when you when you think about in terms of when you equate money with brain power, it makes a statement. Uh one of the things is when you send you can give one individual four hundred thousand dollars, you know, simply simply to coach, uh, which court requires no real effort. Uh, you know, when you talk about four hundred thousand dollars to give to the coach, you're saying that his ability or her ability to actually think is so extraordinary that you will compensate them as such. I mean, clearly this is a situation where because he comes from Notre Dame University, you know, he's highly valued. And as you alluded to before, Brother Africa, Notre Dame is a very conservative university. It's a Catholic university. It's very, very conservative. So the mere fact he's going to pay him $400,000 speaks to not only in terms of coming from a conservative university, but potentially the uh, coming from a, a uni- conservative university that produces people who are capable of high thought. And so, therefore, the willingness to, to compensate him for $400,000. It's, it's unexplainable for the Africa. It seems to me that the, the athletes themselves have to have to organize around, you know, getting paid. It's time that the, the athletes get compensated, you know, for their, you know, for the kind of dollars that they bring into these universities. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars these athletes are bringing into these universities and 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 and, uh, and uh, not sharing in the uh, the riches. So it seems to me, you know, that uh, you know when you start talking about this kind of money for one individual, for one coach. Then you sim- essentially you're making a statement is that from that his that, that that his or her brain power uh, is such that they that it justify paying huge salaries uh, for this particular for a particular individual, which is happening to face in terms of the overall organization. So that's my view on that. Brother Anthony, the little article clearly typifies a relationship between sports, money, and slavery. What can you draw from this article, Brother Anthony? Yes. Well, uh, let's see. I mean, it is the NCAA in general. It, you know, it, it, it is uh, is a uh, is a sort of a slavery relationship. I mean, the athletes are 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 exploited for their labor, and they because they bring millions of dollars to some of these schools. And uh, LSU is a state funded institution. Uh, they they get substantial funds from the state of, of Louisiana, and I, I wanted uh, you know to point that out. The fact that they have the resources to offer uh, that uh, you know that kind of money to try to lure uh, an assistant coach from his current job uh, speaks volumes to the terms of, of the money they take in uh, from athletics. And uh, as Haki pointed out, it is actually the labor of the athletes that makes that possible. But that is uh, but that is characteristic of capitalism, that the people that enjoy uh, that enjoy uh, the, the, the fruits of somebody else's labor aren't the same as the uh, a, a, as the fruit producers. In this case, the athletes, and uh, you know, and it speaks to the disparity that exists in in in, uh, in capitalist society, which is in contrast to uh, what you will see in uh, in in uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, so- in socialist societies, and uh, and th- and and I think it, it, you know it should be understood. That uh, that uh, 
that college athletes, especially in the big money sports like football and basketball, are 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 not really students; they're workers. They make uh, that their role is to uh, you know is to is to win as many games for the school as possible because uh, there's more money to be made by winning than by losing. And uh, I think this is a a, a, a manifestation of uh, the development of uh, of uh, of uh, the capitalist exploitation of labor. Thank you, Brother Ed. This is Eleanor. Talk to me. When we look at this article, you definitely ask yourself, what are they doing? Damn. We are openly saying you're willing to pay a assistant coach additional $400,000 because he coaches the offense, but they didn't report how much they were willing to pay the defensive coordinator, who is the African coach. What is that all about, Sister Eleanor? Well, as we know, uh, the most uh, one, what I've learned about football, whether college football or the NFL, as uh, both Brother Ike and Brother Anthony said, these these uh, athletes are in effect bringing in millions of dollars for their teams, and uh, they are. Um, not compensated in any way, and their scholarships are reviewed annually. And nor are they given the many are not given the academic support that they need to excel intellectually. But also, what's apparent between Friedman and Reese is the common inequity between African coaches, players, and other employees versus their counterparts. And it appears that quite frequently, uh, as a, a, form, a, a matter of practice, the uh, African-American athletes and, and coaches are paid substantially less than others. I think the fact that the uh, they talk about the $400,000 for Reese was they were hoping to pull Reese and Reese would therefore pull Freeman. But I'd like to say something else. Brother Keen talked about the, this guy's intellectual prowess. I think oftentimes coaching is not only or necessarily intellectual prowess as much as it is organizational skills and the ability to motivate others and uh, your reputation and how you've been presented to these young uh, men that uh, engage in these uh, sports activities. And certainly in the uh, college level, uh, there's no compensation that the athletes themselves receive I think uh, previous uh, programs we've looked at maybe some changing policy in terms of remuneration for the athletes themselves. But this is another example of um, 
exploitation and uh, um, class uh, politics and uh, Reese and his $400,000 and then the African, uh, Marcus Freeman, uh, the defense coordinator, there's no discussion of, of his value. And keep in mind, it'll be maybe like Kavanaugh, you know, once you're isolated, there's all kinds of disinformation concerning your lack of qualifications, or as we've seen in other incidents where they talk about not knowing the playbook or not knowing this, there's always a reason to underpay the Africans or displace them. And uh, this is uh, Notre Dame, as uh, Brother Hakeem said, is an Ivy League. It's a, it's a Catholic school, but it's an Ivy League. And uh, it shares something with the East Coast that's on uh, the same timetable in terms of daylight savings time as the East Coast. And it, it's uh, making big money. And, and LSU uh, is a state-run institution, but the state earns so much money off of these uh, athletes and uh, the the revenue from so many sources and uh, that's dumped into the state just by virtue of uh, having these football teams and having winning football teams is phenomenal. And as you know, every year or so, the African people go down to New Orleans for these big sporting events, and they fill the hotels and the restaurants, and they buy all kinds of souvenirs and things. So this is just uh, a money-making ploy, and you pay, you invest in making money. You invest in making more money. And you don't lose any revenue in terms of investing in the athletes themselves. There's no scholarship fund set up for them. There's no um, uh, kind of uh, trust set up for them to help them make it through their future ailments that they may have as a result of having been football players in college. There's nothing for them. There Are there shoe deals for athletes? I don't think so. But the reality is this is, as both Brother Hakeem and Brother Anthony said, just capitalism at its height. And it is uh, these gladiators are entertaining the masses. These, these football players are entertaining the masses. And this is the moneymaker for Notre Dame and the folks in South Bend, just as it is for the people in Louisiana, in New Orleans. So uh, we'll see what happens, and we'll see whether or not there's any type of uh, loyalty that either Friedman or Reeves has. And will they take Marcus Friedman if he chose to leave for economic uh, reasons? Uh, if Reese does not leave, these are very interesting questions. What happens and how does this work? So we see the money makers trying to make more money. Definitely would like to see Freeman contract, how much they will pay him. 
particularly considering that it has been reported that he is responsible for bringing in some of their best football players, and he has a a top-ranked, sucker-ranked, best recruiting class coming in next year to Notre Dame. So I'm interested in seeing what his pay would be compared to the coach, um, Kelly, who just left. So anyway, I thought that, you know, we would talk about this issue, and we go to Brother Moses, and I raised with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, clearly college is, sports is a big-time business. It's a business entity. College is a business entity, a big business. Should an athlete be paid for their participation? What's your take on that, Brother Moses? Yeah, I think, um, you know, work, that's, they brought us here for a job, and the problem is getting paid. Uh, um, um, work is it's, it's the capitalist way. I mean, the unpaid labor is, is, is what the capitalist counts on. Uh, um, these schools um, um, uh, have have these players, students, basically um, playing and, and producing revenue, and and um, the only people who are getting paid are are, are the the coaches. And uh, and uh, I don't know four hundred thousand dollars. I'm sure, I'm sure they they in from the economic standpoint of capitalism and and the way the system is set up. I'm sure they feel like it's worth the money uh, because of the revenue that it's going to be generated. And and um, obviously they they take uh, they have a high opinion of of this coach's abilities. Uh, I can't really add anything other than uh that it's 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 capitalism and uh and that, you know, until there is some kind of equity for I thought the Supreme Court made a ruling that, that they could that 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 um these athletes could get paid uh, or or their likeness um could be compensated for for um their their images being used, et cetera. Uh, but uh, it's a problem, and uh, hopefully somehow it, um, with a, a different social order, there will be a different um, approach to it, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. You listen to Africa on the news. I'm Brother Africa. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a rupture break, culture break. When we come back, we will continue the discussion. Part two. What are they doing? Damn. This is Africa on the moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. 
needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine, Palestine, needs her freedom, Palestine, needs our love, people of all countries, of every race and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Yeah. 
back to Africa on the Moon. Theme tonight, which is part two. What are they doing? Damn. You know, often we ask ourselves when we look at certain things going on around the world, you know, what are they doing? What are they doing? And sometimes we take yourself down. Does this make sense? Or is this crazy or something? It's an expression that really makes you realize something's wrong with that picture. So anyway, that was an interesting article from Black Agenda Report titled, Biden Demands Ethiopia Unconditional Surrender. It was written on the 20th of October, 2021. We had spoken earlier about it, but from a different perspective, on this particular article, we're talking about Biden Demands Ethiopia Unconditional Surrender. Um, I think it put in question, one fundamental question that I would like for my panelists and analysts to maybe dissect and discuss from this point of view. And this point of view is it raised the question of U.S. foreign policy towards Africa, the African people. What is U.S. foreign policy toward Africa, the African people? And once we have answered the question, the question becomes, we should be at level and nature of participation as it relates to Africans living in this country. Brother Haki, we're going to put you in the hot seat right now. Can you respond to that phenomenon, Brother Haki, as you look at this article? Well, well, yeah, Brother Africa. First of all, let me. I, earlier I talked about um, my love for for the Kenyan people, and I forgot to mention the Maasai, and uh, they're very spiritual, very beautiful people, extremely beautiful people, and I forgot to mention that that particular uh, particular group. So I just wanted to clarify that and make and make that and make that correction. Uh, my my response to your question, Brother Africa, what is U.S. foreign policy toward Africa? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, clearly it's one of antagonism. I mean, there's there's no question about it. And this article talks about uh, hybrid warfare. And often when we talk about hybrid warfare, we talk about you know things like you know, mass media, you know, disinformation. Uh, sanctions, uh, financial strangulation, you know, uh, the IF World Bank, uh, you know, funding of, you know, uh, of, of individuals on the ground for the sole purpose of destabilizing the nation. All of these things that are, are in, implicit in terms of uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy when it comes to, to, when it comes to, to the world, in particular when you talk about Africa. And so when you talk about Africa, increasingly, you know, uh, what's been happening over the last last five five to ten years, is that they're actually been moving um, military uh, operations from uh, Western Asia or so-called uh, Middle East to Africa. And so the focus is on Africa now. And so all of these Western powers, particularly the United States, uh, the UK, are sink uh, right there in Africa, and they're there because their thing is to control of the resources of Africa. And so when we so when we talk about hybrid, you know, hybrid uh, welfare, uh, warfare, uh, the thing is we have to understand is that, you know, essentially what the U.S. wants, U.S. issues they're going to get. And to the, to the extent that African leaders in particular capitulate uh, to, to Western demands in terms of control of their society, it's going to, it's going to exist. Uh, so it's important that African leaders understand. Talking about the liberation of the continent and talking about liberation of the country, it's going to take a collective effort. You're not going to do it unilaterally. It simply can't happen. 
Now, and, and but more importantly, Brother Africa, I think just in terms of the impact in terms of nationally, uh, one of the things that people people should understand is that when when Africa when, when the United States implements these foreign policy uh, directives, we have to understand that it does fundamentally mean a reduction in terms of resources to the society. It doesn't necessarily mean that a reduction in terms of earnings for the people at the top. Of course, they continue to make money despite uh, U.S. foreign policy. But just in terms of actual uh, resources actually reaching America, it does have a, a, a very negative impact in terms of the resources. And so essentially what we're talking about is the, 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 the pauperization uh, of, of, of the United States based upon U.S. foreign policy that makes uh, the possible resources from one country to another to actually enter the U.S. And so we should understand that so when the U.S. protects these kind of foreign policy initiatives, it's not good for the average person here in America, but it's something that we're conditioned not to believe or something we're conditioned not to even think about. You think about U.S. foreign policy is good, it's good for the capitalists, and it must be good for everybody else. That's not the situation at all. Uh, but one thing, um, you know, um, in, 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 in respect to the African, African community, I think one of the things we have to understand is that an attack on Africa is an attack on Africans throughout the diaspora. And we have to be very, very clear on that point. And so when they talk about uh, disempowering Africa, when they talk about marginalizing Africa, making Africa poorer and poorer, understand that uh, the, same, the same attitude, uh, the same system uh, that sees as favorable in terms of um, – the, uh, the the marginalization of Africa also sees as the favorable in terms of the marginalization of, Afri- of African people here in the United States. And so, therefore, when we talk about Africa as a colony in the United States, it's important to understand that even though we don't understand it oftentimes, we're treated as a colony. And being a colony in the, in the context of the United States doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have wealthy people. It doesn't mean that you don't have people, you know, in very, very, you know, uh, uh, very important jobs. It doesn't mean anything. You can have all of that and still have a colony. But just in terms of, you know, how things uh, manifest themselves in terms of U.S. domestic economy, so when we look at things like unemployment, we look at homelessness, and we look at the infant mortality rate, and we look at terms of poor educational schools, all that is a reflection in terms of policies that are being made by people at the top in terms of how they see African people in the society. So we cannot divorce the marginalization or the, 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 the devaluation of African lives on the continent from the same kind of devaluation and marginalization of Africans here in the Western Hemisphere, particularly in the United States, in the Western world. So I think to answer your question, Brother Africa, you know, U.S. foreign policy is very, very destructive, and it's designed such. Uh, one of the things that when we talk about, from an economic point of view, when we talk about the, the construction of all this military weaponry, uh, it leads to greater poverty, because then you understand that once this military weaponry is used, it has to be replenished, which means it takes more and more money in terms of doing that. Ultimately, what it does is bankrupt the economy, and it's a very, very slow process, but unless it happens. In order to counter for this, for this, for this process in terms of undermining the U.S. economy by, you know, wealth, by war, warfare expenditures, it does one of two things. It actually increases, wealthy, uh, increases taxes on the poorest, or poorest people, or, it, or, it, or it, it, it invests heavily in terms of the police state in terms of making sure that given the fact that people don't have access to jobs, to, to education, to shelter, to things that they need, it increases investment in terms of the police state to make sure that you can ease control all those increasing number of people who don't have access to the things they need as human beings in the society. And so when we talk about the National Defense Authorization Act and we talk about this whole push in terms of of the U.S. government plan to in turn to to in turn large number of people in society. 
when specifically poor people and or African people, when we talk about that determined process, it's part and parcel of the U.S. foreign policy, which in, in essence bankrupt the U.S. economy. So we have to be very, very clear on that, on, on that, on that, on that relationship between U.S. foreign policy and bankrupting the U.S. economy. And uh, but having said that, brother Africa, you know I'm simply concluded this. Uh, one of the things we have to understand, we have a vested interest in terms of understanding that what impacts Africa impacts us. We also have to understand that it's incumbent upon Africa specifically in terms of all, you know, in terms of uni- uni- unification. African states independently cannot combat the overall uh, power of the military expenditures that are being exerted by the West for the sole purpose of Af- for subjugating Africa. African states working in concert, working together on a united socialist front, a non-socialist government, in terms of being able to actually stand up and to fight back against this overwhelming power that's being utilized by Western support forces for the for the for the sake of, of, of uh, destabilizing, marginalizing Africa. So we have a vested interest in African people throughout the diaspora in terms of a strong Africa, but just as important as the important African people understand that unless Africans work together to create a, a, as Gaddafi was trying to do, create the United States of Africa, then the reality is that Western nations will continue to divide and conquer. And I close with that. Before you close that, Brother Haki, give our listening audience particular speak to the African community outside of the continent of Africa. Give us maybe some kind of example of how what takes place in Africa directly has an impact or has a significant uh, 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 well-being to their well-being, where would they be at? Because Africans always tell me where I go, that's in Africa. Oh, they don't have nothing <laughs> to do with me. So, so what do you, what do you say to these Africans? <laughs> well, well, the, the, the history of colonialism. We understand there are certain precepts, certain ideas in terms of associated with colonialism. Chief among those ideas is this notion that one's worth is based upon their skin color. And so the last 500 years, we had a, 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 a system, a system of so-called science, which legitimizes the notion in terms of some people or to others based upon skin color. So if we think for one second that, you know, that somehow that being an African but in America uh, uh, make, puts you on the outside in terms of how people receive you in the West in terms of skin color, then you're sadly mistaken. We have been saying that this, this, this global this global prejudice in terms of how to see African people exist exists throughout the world. We have to understand that. And so and as long as Africa is marginalized, it's not in a position to stand up, then we have to understand that in terms of the kind of problems that Africans born in America have to contend with, those issues will not be addressed because there is no counterweight in terms of U.S. policy as relates to Africans in America. And so therefore, they're free to exploit us ruthlessly to, to create conditions horrible conditions for us, whether we talk about unemployment, homelessness, poverty, uh, informality, whatever we're talking about, they're able to perpetuate those conditions in the African community of those Africans born in America simply because Africa is not, doesn't serve as a counterweight in terms of saying, you know what, you're going to, you, you know, that's, not, that's unacceptable, and if that persists, we will punish you economically or whatever way in terms of making sure that practice comes to the end. If you take China as an example, the historical abuse of China, particularly in the thirties, in terms of the marginalization of Chinese people, in terms of how they treat Chinese people, they call Chinese people dogs, and they kind of yelp the hatred and these so-called yellow pearl, all those things affiliated with the Chinese. Well, when you look at the, the, the terms of the treatment of Chinese people today, uh, it's, it's, it's starkly different. China's a power, 
And they understand that what you do to Chinese people in America does impact the Chinese people on the mainland. And if you can persist with policies that adversely impact the Chinese masses in America, then there's a consequence to pay as far as, as far as economic policy between U.S. and China relationships. They understand that. So the situation with the Chinese people is different. It doesn't mean that the prejudice toward the Chinese is, it, it disappeared. It's still there. It's just that it's just like going to manifest itself. In other words, the people in positions of power are going to clamp down on those who actually are, 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 are brazen in terms of their, 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 their hatred or, or, or aversion to, Af- to, to Chinese people being here in America. They're, they're, going, they're going to express it a different way. They're not going to be overt about it. But when it comes to African people, they can be overt about their hatred or their disdain for African people without fear of consequences. We have to have a united and strong Africa because one hand wants the other. Just like we need Africa, Africa needs us. We fight for a strong Africa. Africa wants strong and united have to fight for us. So it's a, it's, it's, a mutual, it's, a, it's a mutual collaboration that has to happen in terms of putting an end to the kind of wholesale um, uh, marginalization or, or abuse or, or oppression that's affected upon African people uh, worldwide. That sounds good enough to me, Brother Hockey. We're going to move to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, <laughs> same question, but in a different way. When you look at U.S. foreign policy, is the asset or liability to African, Africa or African people development? What's your take on that, Brother Anthony? It's a liability. Definitely a liability to African people's development, and uh, and that's and and uh, on several levels. One, uh, let's see, um, let's see. As long as Africa's oppressed, uh, Africans throughout the world uh, uh, lack a national home for one thing. They don't control uh, the resources. And also, it, uh, it, it and also it, it 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 affects Africans' mental state psychologically, as Malcolm X pointed out several decades ago, that uh, that Africans that have uh, that have a negative perception of Africa, typically have a negative perception of themselves, and historically that uh, that that that's turned out to be true. Uh, Africans that uh, that have uh, African a lot of Africans that have negative perceptions of Africa do indeed have negative perceptions of themselves, of their ability, etc., and also of their uh, uh, you know of their uh, you know of their uh, of their appearance, and. Uh, you know, and uh, let's say I think uh, the U.S. perceives Africa as its backyard now because of AFRICOM, and they're trying to get tr- control Africa's resources. Now that that uh, having discovered that Africa is rich in natural resources, and uh, also with uh, international export uh, advances in technology. It can exploit labor on an international scale that it wasn't able to do before, and therefore the African uh, population in the U.S. has become expendable in the eyes of some uh, of some sectors of uh, uh, of the U.S. ruling class. 
and uh, that, uh, and uh, so it is in our interest uh, to see Africa strong and united. And it can only be a strong united under a socialist government. And it's in the interest of Africans, not only at home, but in the diaspora, to see that happen. And uh, the difficulty is that we continue to be disorganized. That is the bi- the biggest barrier to our unification, our lack of permanent political organization. So, Anthony, you know, when you look at U.S. policy, it's a policy that fits and shape all of Africa and African people. So should we have a policy, a philosophy that would shape and fit all the African African people based on our own class interests? How does Pan Africanism play as an alternative or counterbalance to this kind of imperialist influence? Yes. Um Pan Africanism, as I've uh, said numerous times, is the total liberation and unification of Africa under, under scientific socialism. A unified Africa would get would provide uh, 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 you know a, a power base for Africans in the diaspora as well, and um, and uh, once uh, and if you look at um, you know uh, you know uh, China now that China is liberated and uh, unified. Uh, you know, for the most part, uh, Chinese throughout the world are respected. They used to look down upon China uh, and uh, Chinese people. They were seen as, uh, uh, you know, as uh, merely a source of uh, cheap labor. But now that the Chinese have organized and liberated their home, that uh you know the chinese wherever they go in the world are respected and uh and uh africa when it is unified and organized will also be respected and will also be uh the most powerful country in the world with the resources it, it, you know it, it has at its disposal and under its control right now uh, the resources and labor of Africa enrich other nations to the def- to the detriment of uh, African people worldwide, and it's been that way for centuries. But the only way to reverse that is through Pan Africanism, and that is uh, through through political unification and the control of our own resources. And under a unified socialist Africa, African uh, the resources of Africa could use be used primarily to benefit Africans. Okay, Sister Eleanor, when we look at the Black Agenda article report article, Biden's demand Ethiopia's unconditional unconditional surrender. Um, that's interesting. You use the word surrender. That says that. But in terms of the Biden administration, 
as relates to the relates to Africa, African people. In terms of the administration, I'm looking at the role that African people have played to put them in this position. Um, what do you take on Azotica in terms of what benefits can African people say that they have received so far from the behavior of the Biden administration, if any? Well, Brother Africa, as we know, um, and as I mentioned earlier, with the huge amount of uh, Ethiopians, um, diaspora of Ethiopians in the United States, a huge number of them are the Tigray. And um, as I said, living in Houston, L.A., and D.C., um, the Tigray, and these wealthy People, capitalists seem to refer to capitalists for advice. And I see the United States not in um, examining real foreign policy. I call this um, not really celebrating diversity, but I see this as bourgeois internationalism, where uh, a few powerful, wealthy people, the ones that are benefiting, the business owners, that are benefiting from the African Growth and Opportunity Act because the folks in Ethiopia aren't running their factories. The workers themselves, the rural women and the workers in the factories aren't benefiting from this trade, nor do I think many of the workers in the other 34 or 40 African nations that participate in the AGOA are benefiting. So what the U.S. is doing is using uh, bourgeois internationalism and uh, working with certain special interest groups uh, within the Tigray. Now, I do think that there is a real humanitarian crisis on the ground in the Tigray region. Now, that has nothing to do necessarily with the conflict between Ethiopian faction. So the issue of feeding and sheltering people and the huge number of refugees that have been created in the last issue should stand on its own. Um, Similar to the way I think that in Afghanistan, the issue of uh, human rights, access to food and medicine and and, uh, other resources should be uh, given to the Afghani people while right now the EU, the United States, and other nations have sanctions against and frozen Afghani assets. Well, again, in Ethiopia, we have the U.S. using its bourgeois internationalism. It has nothing to do with real diversity. And the Tigray influencing the uh, Biden administration. You know, uh, U.S. citizens love meeting people from other places. Capitalists love this idea now that there are cap neo-colonialists of every type and variety that are willing to oppress African people. And I see that as a part of the cultural complex that we're having here domestically, that we don't have an uh, interest in Africa and African people and their sovereignty and workers' liberation. Rather, we have an, an interest in production as usual. 
the old means of production. The ruling class has the lowly workers barely eking out a living while they become millionaires, billionaires by Western standards. So I see this as a big conflict. This bourgeois and the nationalism has people like Biden and Anthony um, Blinken who know nothing about Ethiopia, know very little about Africa, making decisions based on probably meeting with a group of people with special business interests in Ethiopia, and more likely because of their past control and rule of Ethiopia, it's Tigray, people of the Tigray uh, region or tribe. Now, uh, many, as I said, live in exile now in the United States, here in the nation's capital, where I'm speaking to you from, Washington, D.C., in L.A. and Houston. And I'm sure that these people are whom is sitting at the table. Now, one thing that this NGO um, had mentioned in the article was, uh, and the ambassador uh, from Ethiopia had suggested, and we've heard it suggested before, Brother Anthony, Brother Haki, Brother Moses, they always talk about this. And that's as the African Union negotiating collectively rather than allowing individual nation states to be picked apart by Western powers. So once the African Union in Addis Ababa unites and works together, I think we'll see um, a little more support for African nation state sovereignty. And I think if we continue to operate on bourgeois internationalism, well, we meet some rich folks, you know, somebody from Ethiopian Airlines or some guy that's um, helping earn millions of dollars in his pocket while meagerly employing his fellow brothers and sisters in Ethiopia. When we move away from that and make it a human rights issue, we'll see some real changes, Brother Africa. Thank you, Madam Sister, for your response. And to Brother Moses, Brother Moses, what you make of the Biden administration interfering in internal affairs of Africa? Well, the the the, the oppressor is going to do that, that will not um, recognize any rights of the oppressed, uh, um, and um, the U.S. government, you know, it, it has a capitalist, um, imperialist uh, foreign policy, of, of, or it's not even a policy; it's a, it's a, it's a, a political economy of imperialism and uh, oppression. And so, you know, Biden is just not in any position to be telling people what to do with, in terms of Africa. Uh, um, and uh and you know we just have to recognize that um you know the the capitalists uh the capitalists and uh and uh the inter- their interest is, is not a not in line with the oppressed people of the world and so you know i i i don't put any credence in in uh 
and what he's demanding. Uh, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Now, for our last article for the night, as we lace our theme tonight, um, we'll start off with Brother Haki and then Brother Anthony. Uh, there's an article that written by Political titles White House Bill Bridges, one of the black community's most powerful group. Now, this is for the magazine Political. It's titled, we've asked all that listening audience to check this out. It titles White House Bills Bridges were one of black community's most powerful groups. Now, from this article, it talks about the power of the pan leading cancer. It's about nine sororities and fraternity groups um, that have spent a lot of time in terms of I guess organized blocking block voting blocks among African people. They call themselves the Divine Nine. I don't know if they call themselves that, but at least the article described them as the Divine Nine. Now there was a request from the Biden administration to Pamela Harris and his administration to call and meet with these groups and these groups uh met with them solely for the interest to see how they can ensure and maintain uh, maybe the re-election of this administration and Joe, and, um, Joe Biden. Now, when I read this article, one thing came to my mind real clearly, and I might be wrong, and that is when one look at and talk about what is neocolonialism and how neocolonialism look, and not just from another foreign country, but also in our community, we have neocolonialism. This seems to be a, a, a form of behavior of neocolonialism, Brother Aki. We have so-called chosen leadership to act on behalf and interests of African people where their interests may not necessarily be met and fulfilled in, in their best interest of cutting deals and supporting political parties that have no interest for the interests of their people. To me, this is a form of neocolonialism. How do you view that particular generalization that I have just labeled in terms of looking at this, looking at and viewing this article, Brother Hackey? Well, Brother Africa, I don't think what you're saying is a generalization. I think it's it's true. It's, it's definitively true. Uh, one is one of the ironies from the from the from the from the from the, from the start is that when they talk about the fact that a national panhellenic Council. In other words, they said a Pan Greek Council. It speaks to the misconceptions in terms of the flow of the flow of knowledge as it exists, you know, throughout the world. Totally denies Africa's role in terms of dissemination of knowledge throughout the world, and it, it says that all knowledge essentially comes from the Greek. So that in itself tells you a lot in terms of the kind of ignorance that this particular council manifests, the kinds of things that they believe. And one of the things about Africa, when I think about someone like Jim Clyburn, uh, you know, uh, who's a member of uh, Congress. And I think the kind of ignorance and kind of the willingness for him to kowtow, you know, to policy, even though when that policy ever so negatively impacts African people, uh, it sort of speaks speaks values in terms of the kind of mindset of this so-called the uh, so-called divine nine. And so when you talk about the kind of neocolonialism uh, that exists uh, domestically, uh, you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. One of the things you want to do is you want to validate those Africans in the community who 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 positions uh, that they take are non-threatening. 
certainly uh, to the extent that you're going to address the kind of social ills that um, that uh, so uh, overwhelmingly impact the African community. In order to address those issues, then it takes a real, it takes a, a very strong stand in terms of addressing those issues. But of course, one of the things you want to do as a person in a position of power, you don't want to, you don't want to even have those kind of discussions with people who have a strong stand in terms of issues that that that, that, that adversely impact the African community. You must prefer, as a person of power, to talk to those Africans whose positions are, are pliable, whose positions are uh, palatable, those positions in which you can accept. In other words, the positions that these people from the, parent, the so-called divine nine, the kind of issues that they would articulate, are issues of which exist within the, within the context of the mainstream. In other words, everything they do is in further um, uh, glorification or uh, realization of a system in place that's, that's fundamentally denies African people their humanity. They don't have a problem with that. So for them, if you if you create a few more jobs for African people in positions of power, then that's perceived as a plus. Forget about the millions who are unemployed, unemployable. Uh, forget about the structural, the structural racism that keeps people unemployed. Forget about all that. The mere fact that you've hired a few in, in meaningful positions means that that's a good thing. You're doing okay. So that's a reformist position, and that's the kind of positions that they advocate. And so, so for people in positions of power like Joe Biden, President Biden, it's very easy in, you know, for him to negotiate with people like that. Because they're not going to take a strong stand. They're not going to critique capitalism. They're not going to do that. They're not going to critique capitalism. They're going to look at, for instance, if we talk about police brutality, you know, for them, for someone like 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 uh, Jim Clyburn, his position is police brutality exists because people are unwilling to cooperate with the police, despite the fact numerous numerous information which says that uh, despite facts, walk, people walking in the door, people walking on the street, people minding their own business getting shot in the back by police doesn't seem to resonate with him. In his mind, it's always your fault. It's never the police's fault. And it's to be expected because everything he does, everything his perception is, 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 is reformist. So he doesn't, he doesn't see in terms of critique, in terms of, you know, why police kill people, that in fact they serve the interests of the ruling class to kill people, to keep people in positions of, 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 of fear, of helplessness. He doesn't want to deal with that. So he doesn't even deal with the question in terms of, you know, uh, capitalism in terms of its manifestation, particularly as it relates to how it impacts, negative impacts African people. So I'm not surprised that they would bring this group out. That's what they always do. They do this in America, the U.S., they do it in the U.K., they do it in Africa, they do it in Central, South America, they do it in the Caribbean, they, you know, they, they do it in the far, they do it in the, in the West, Western Asia, they do it in Asia, wherever. That is part of the game. It's divide and conquer. So you get the, those people who are least who are least committed to the people. You make them spokesperson for that community. So as a consequence, the kind of the kind of issues they get addressed never are, never are issues of any substance. They're more um, they're more uh, more fallacious, more uh, uh, more a uh, more a uh, 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 more more kind of uh, value, uh, more kind of issues. Which does are not deeply penetrating issues of which, uh, in which the people in the ruling the ruling class can accept, because it means that nothing's going to fundamentally change, and so so this guy so this, this so-called ruling the so-called divine nine is the epitome of that. So we shouldn't be surprised when they bring these people, march these people out, and they tell the masses of African people, hey, these are your leaders. Well, based upon what, what kind of standard they taking? What are they doing? Are they are they um, in the tradition of say the Black Panthers? 
Are they the tradition of the Republic of New Africa? Are they the tradition of the Black Liberation Army? Are they the tradition of the uh, the uh, demons for the defense? Are they in the history of of uh, 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 um, uh, Harriet Tubman? Are they the tradition of uh, uh, people standing up, you know, uh, taking on the system? Are they in that tradition? No, they're not in that tradition. They're in a totally different tradition. They're in the tradition of the reformist tradition. In other words, those African people who are whose positions are much more powerful, much more easier for people in positions of power to accept. And that's and, and that's that. So that's just part and parcel in terms of divide and conquer. And I close with that. We're going to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, from your perspective, is this also another form of neocolonialism? What is so divine about this particular group? Uh it's the fr- the fraternities and soror- sororities are elitist organizations. Uh, this is definitely a, 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 another manifestation of neocolonialism, in which uh, the bourgeoisie picks the leadership of a particular community. Uh, no one uh, selected them. Uh, no one in the community selected them to this role, but it's a role they get because they are products of the college educational system. Uh, the the African uh, fraternities and sororities were created uh, because. Africans on the college campuses in the U.S. were excluded from the Greek letter societies uh, that were uh, controlled by the uh, that were dominated by the uh, by, by, by the European mainstream. So they formed their own their own Greek letter societies in reaction to. Uh, the uh, the exclusion uh, by the European counterparts, and uh, they were, um, and they uh, they they're an elitist organization because they they cater to a particular class within the African community. That is the African petty bourgeoisie. And uh, so they have uh, that they tend to have bourgeois aspirations for the most part, with some exceptions, because being that they're not a political formation per se, they do have all kinds there are all kinds of political currents that run through them, but for the most part, their uh, their, their outlook is petty bourgeois, as is their leadership. Even though there have been some, uh, there have been some uh, forces such as uh, individuals such as Kwame Nkrumah and Martin Luther King that have been uh, that have pledged uh, that have been part of Greek leather organizations historically, but for the most part, they present petty bourgeois interests in our community. And uh, the reason why uh, uh, the Biden administration is trying to build ties with them is to increase support uh, 
in the African community for uh, uh, for his administration. It's uh, it, 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 you know it's an election ploy, so to speak. Uh, the uh, these uh, organ, uh, organizations do not represent the interests of the masses of struggling people. They represent the interests of a particular class that has uh, bourgeois aspirations. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, talk to us. When you read this article and you talk about talking about a a, a, a divine man that would speak to the interests of, for the interests of African people and be propped up as a supporting cast for the Democratic Party. Do you think this is a good path to continue to take based upon the lack of results that we have seen so far since our inception of being here? Says Eleanor, what's your take on this article? I'm sorry, Brother Africa. I didn't hear the last part of your question. Since our, what did you say? I said, what is your take on this article? Since the inception of being here, is it a good thing to continue to lend our support to an institution and party that never put us first, never put our interests of, you know, on our agenda, and we have very little to show from them. Um, that's a um, a really good question, Brother Africa. You know, uh, Glenda Baskin Grover talked about that herself. She's the international president of the Alpha Kappa Alpha. And, I mean, these women have power. When they walk into a church or walk into a community and they're wearing pink, everybody knows the AKA are there. And I think it was only that uh, uh, Sister Harris uh, is in the White House that uh, the uh, uh, Biden administration had an opportunity to penetrate uh, organizations that have such deep roots in the African community. And uh, they certainly have failed us. And as uh, Sister Grover said, you know, they are concerned about uh, Black Votes Matter and the Biden administration has set aside why 37 states have passed voter suppression laws and watch this growing uh, disinformation where we have a huge number of Republicans believing the election was stolen from Donald Trump in 2020, his second term. So, you know why 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 should they sit at the table with Biden if it's going to weaken their position so it's really gives uh it really gives uh these sororities and fraternities have great power in the black community and yes they are uh rooted in the uh educated class the bourgeois class um but everyone who receives an education isn't necessarily a stock, uh, a capitalist, as uh, Kwame as Kwame, as Dr. King, and so many others. Um, they are in effect, in effect, folks trying to uh, receive educations. Many African people believe education is liberation unto itself. Whether they were uh, AKA working in the post office in the 1960s or in the 21st century, 
there and AKA in the White House. So, um, you know, this is an opportunity to leverage uh, black power. It's an opportunity for them to put pressure on Biden and Congress to push the uh, Lewis Act, Voters Act, or something to stop this catastrophe that we're facing in 2022 and 2024, where so many voters will be disenfranchised. And I understand voting is just one aspect of a liberation and experiencing freedom in a society, but it's clearly one that purposefully and intentionally had been denied to African people in the United States. It's definitely something that the U.S. imperialists oppose, such as in Cuba, Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, when they uh, participated in the assassination of Moa Gaddafi, a great world leader. So the reality is this, these people were at the table because they were a hidden resource. And the, they don't deserve, the Democrats don't necessarily deserve their support. You got people like Joe Manchin and others that are working against uh, democracy because he has special interests with coal mining in West Virginia. Uh, but as uh, Latasha Brown said, uh, uh, she's a political strategist that is the co-founder of Black Votes Matter and uh, a voting rights advocate. Right now, um, the administration has uh, allowed a lot of goodwill to dissipate from the black community because of its perceived lack of movement on key issues affecting African voters in America. That's a right that may not be the end all, but it's a step towards liberation. Because if we need to get organized and form a new party, and it can be done, we saw it done in Europe with the Green Party, it can be done here. It'll take millions of people but it can be done. Just plant that seed and watch it grow like a mustard seed, Brother Africa. But the reality is right now, as uh, Ms. Brown said, a lot of goodwill has been dispersed when we saw Biden his first year in the White House uh, ignore these uh, voting atrocities happening in states across the country and um, and on the other hand, it's great that African people are having a Friday 12 noon meeting in the White House or meeting uh, directly with uh, Vice President Harris to discuss issues. But again, we can't beat down these people as workers because they are educated. We have to support them and we have to put pressure on the AKA and others to support the interests of the people and working class. We have to keep in the forefront of our minds and their minds that we are workers. Whether you're earning a livable wage or not, we are all one hand and should work as one hand together. You know, 
or two hands clapping. But certainly um, uh, there's a lot of bad in, in, uh, energy around this voting issue, and um, the Biden administration is going to have to address that. And these uh, sororities and fraternities put in hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations uh, to that uh, Harris Biden-Harris ticket because of what she represented in the minds and hearts of millions of people. So uh, something's definitely, there's something that can be done there. But again, as Brother Anthony said, this is neo-colonialism. So we don't want to have the leadership uh, destroyed because they are uh, uh, um, in such a uh, great position. So right now it's up to members and others, uh, whether they are co-workers at, at public schools and other places where AKA uh, members work. I give them credit. They don't usually, I've never seen one in a, charter school. They may work in public schools, but certainly not charter schools. So these sororities have uh, and fraternities uh, uh, fraternities, I'm sorry, uh, have great value in the black community in helping African people uh, receive education and lifelong support. Many of them are not just something that disappears upon graduation day. And because of our race we are not often given opportunities. We have to share information and begin to work together and do so increasingly. And organizing is the way to do it. And these groups are clearly organized. And it's up to Biden. It's in his, his ballpark now. What's going to happen with voter rights in this United States? What is the federal government going to do? We saw Lyndon Bain Johnson sign the Voters' Rights Act into law. What is Biden going to do? Now's his opportunity because we don't need to take two steps backwards to have a revolution. The people have to keep pushing. Just like Starbucks workers last week decided to form a union in one Starbucks, that will affect the other 9,000 Starbucks across the country. So when uh, fraternities and sororities uh, unite and uh, have a seat at the table, as Shirley Chisholm said, look, if they don't give you a chair, bring your own. But the bottom line is voter rights. Let's start with uh, education, reproductive rights, and very basic human rights in this country as it affects uh, African diaspora and uh, African people. Uh, and uh, indigenous people in the United States and uh, the Americas. So this, this, uh, we'll see where this goes. But there is definitely a burning issue as fascism is, uh, is on the move. We saw that we elected a fascist president, Donald Trump. So we need to act now and, uh, make our voices heard. And I think the, that this might ha- might happen. It's not going to reverse capitalism. But these people, again, as I said, Brother Africa, are deeply rooted in the black community, serving the black community. They're not all 
uh, we're all capitalists in a capitalist economy in some way. And we don't control the means of production. But many of these people act to, whether it's Baba Ntunde, whether it's Dr. King, whomever, they, they have worked for social justice through their lives' work, through the arts, through science, through the humanities, and so many other ways. So we'll, we'll see what happens, Brother Africa. And it is... Uh, Thank you, Mr. Colonial. We're let Brother Moses close us out. Brother Moses, your, your thoughts on this? Brother Moses. Yeah. Well, this, these fraternities, uh, as you said, uh, you know, are elitist and, um, and um, represent the petty bourgeoisie aspirations, and et cetera, et cetera. It's all been said. Uh, I don't need to keep repeating it. Uh, um, to, you know, hopefully, you know, there there's some progressive people within these places uh that have 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 the interests of of the masses in in, in their mind uh, at some point uh it can't be all uh, all capitalists uh but you know that's that's yet to be seen uh um biden biden is is you know Doing, I don't, I don't even think President Obama even met with some. Uh, um, so I mean, it's a new, a new, new day for them uh, in terms of uh, getting status in terms of the government and, and lobbying, etc. Uh, I we 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 gotta we gotta get get organized and and do. What we need to be doing, and, and uh, not so, not get bogged down on on, on what other people are doing uh, so much uh, uh, that it inhibits what we're doing. And so, that's the bottom line. Uh, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. I agree, you brother Moses. But I think this that's the point. I think uh, one may get from this article is that. We need to be, we, we agree to be involved in figuring out and understanding what other people are doing because other people, what other people do, they do have impact on your community and what you are doing. So in that sense, I think the article has some legitimacy in terms of trying to critique and analyze, you know, who are the so-called illusionary players and how they're influencing uh, the behavior and the actions of our communities directly and indirectly. So anyway, we are coming to the end of this program. Right now, we're going to take a quick uh, revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we will have everyone give their final thoughts for the night. As we close out this segment, part two, what are they doing? Damn, this is Africa on the move. Passport Rav, Malcolm on Twitter, featuring Napoleon the legend. The 
conspiracy theorists What if my had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it This integration been disintegrating Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation His last speech got him assassinated Black business was booming, it wasn't just a consumer Controlling our narrative, we have more marriages And see what the damage did, they ain't that bad a bitch And welfare did its way worse than the slavery I'll never be an agent, I don't care what they paying me Seemed like Nip had the same old story If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive Who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler Trying to fear people of that low vibe structure Agree to disagree and we ain't gotta tear our own down Argue in silence, they'll forever be our own down All I wanna say is that we're giving it away Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fake Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate Right behind doors, but don't ever show our face Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter It'd be our own people do the trolling Spill ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter It'd be our own people do the trolling Spill ignorance and do the scolding Where we going? Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new I said, what if we been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right Your arrogance precedes you What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me A man lay dead in the street today I must have hung my head and landed in 1940 or something, I swear. And all I have is love and joy to give. I need to spread my wings. I need to fly away. I want to get high today. Who got five on my little bundle of temporary? Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary. Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried. But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already. And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose. Two different tribes and we fighting the same person. Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us. Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated and gave me the strength make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work. A man laid dead in the street today, I must have hung my head, and landed in 1940 or something, I swear, and all I have is love and joy to give, I need to spread my wings, I need to fly away. We must have bumped our heads. We keep doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting for something different to take place or different resorts. We would like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. This is part two of What Are They Doing? Damn, we will have our final thoughts from our political panelists and analysts tonight. And we'll start off with Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night, Brother Moses. It's been an interesting show. Uh, I appreciate uh, allowing me to be on. Uh, I think, you know, we 
we, in terms of doing the same thing over and over again, um, 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 this takes an analysis of what what we're doing uh, um, and what's working and what's not working. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, we need to organize uh, uh, people for a revolution. But uh, meanwhile, in between time, what what what, what are we doing uh, in terms of the government putting the the crisis on our backs? Uh, we need to, to to alleviate some of the problems that are being placed on our backs, and you know, and that may be a reform, but but that's that's what we need to do in the meantime, in between time. And so, anyway, I I um, I enjoyed the show. Thank you, and have a good night. Good night to you, brother Moses. Next, we'll go to. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight. Well, Brother Africa, um, uh, thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's show. And uh, I, on the issue of bumping our heads, I think that we have to always move forward. Uh, that's part of the struggle for revolution, plant the seed and organize and work at it. And for the first time in history to see black sororities and fraternities at the table uh, is a step in the right direction because no one group is all of anything. And definitely revolutionary people are a part of these uh, uh, fraternities and sororities. So we'll see where that goes. Though voting isn't the end all, it's definitely uh, a priority to freedom-loving people on planet Earth, a human right to be able to participate in government. And for many of us, voting is that. And for so many of us African people in America, it was something that was denied in our lifetime and denied in our parents' and ancestors' lifetime. And... Uh, just one closing comment, Brother Africa. You see in the District of Columbia, uh, for years, people struggled for statehood and independence. As long as it was a chocolate city, it was uh, not even addressed. When Obama came to the White House, and uh, to quote uh, Faith, Mayor Faith, uh, D.C. had become a vanilla villa, end quote. Suddenly these issues became important, and it was as, as if only the statehood Greens had ever thought of it and no one else standing had ever participated in porting voters' uh, rights in the district. And uh, with that in mind, I just wish everyone uh, a blessed week. I stand in solidarity with the workers and the people, uh, especially the prison workers in Kentucky when that uh, tornado hit uh, and they had 100 women uh, working in this candle factory 24-7, uh, buried under five feet of debris, and a sister started broadcasting live on Facebook to get help because help didn't seem like it was coming. And what happened in Arizona, I mean, in uh, Arkansas, 
and uh, these states is a definite atrocity. And uh, uh, I, I, I look forward to uh, finding out what we as workers can do to help our brothers and sisters in coming days to uh, rise above this atrocity, this national, uh, natural atrocity due to global warming. Thank you, Brother Africa. We thank you, Sister Eleanor, and now we'll move to Brother Haki. You'll find the thoughts for tonight, Brother Haki. Let me just let me just pose a philosophical question, and that question is: Do people have a right to exist under capitalism? One of the things when you look at the ecological destruction that's taking place in this country, uh, uh, it gives one uh, pause of thought. Uh, recently, in the Northwest, uh, they talked about the U.S. experienced uh, 40 earthquakes in 24 hours, and clearly the uh, depletion of oil, you know, uh, from the uh, from the earth is having a rather debilitating impact on the um, the uh, technical structures, um, you know, um, in the earth, in terms of uh, in terms of making it possible for these um, for these structures to actually shift, creating these earthquakes that these tremors that uh, that are becoming so commonplace. And it seems to me that if, in fact, that uh, people have a right to exist, one of the things you got to seriously contemplate uh, as, as, a, as a so-called leader is maybe, uh, in terms of extraction of oil, if that's going to, in fact, lead to the uh, destruction of the planet itself. Secondly, when I ask the question, do people have a right to exist under capitalism, this question in terms of poverty. Uh, one of the things when you talk about poverty, we can't divorce employment from poverty. And one of the things in the context of capitalism, when you talk of full employment, it doesn't mean full employment. So when we talk in context of capitalism, we talk about employment. What we're talking about is the ability of the wealthy to make money. Uh, to the extent that that ability to make money is compromised, that depend that would depend that would that would uh, discern how much employment is in fact viable. So if, if in other words, if if I'm going to employ ten people, but that's going to mean less profitability for me than I employed four. Because that means more profitability for me. But the bottom line is that if I only employ four people, then what that means, inevitably, I'm creating poverty. And so, in the context of capitalism, that's all, all in good. And in the, the, the problem, just in terms of humanity, it doesn't serve the interests of humanity. Uh, also, with respect to this question, in terms of uh, do people have a right to exist under capitalism, the question of homelessness. Uh, it seems to me that if the government had the vested interest in terms of providing for its populace, one of the things you have to address is question of homelessness. Homelessness, but unfortunately, in the context of capitalism, you got a situation where wealthy control the assets. Not only that, you have a situation where governments print up trillions and trillions of dollars specifically for the express purpose of giving the money to the wealthiest people in society who then buy assets, who make rents, who make uh, mortgages impossible to sustain, given the fact that the, the wages are actually continually falling for the last 30 years. So clearly, homelessness is an issue, but as far as capitalism is concerned, it's not an issue, and that's problematic. Just as a human being. Let's say education, and we talk about finance and education. Now, why do school systems, why are they financed based upon uh, property taxes? I mean, it seems to me the government had a vested interest in making sure all the citizens have access to a quality education. The mere fact the government doesn't have a vested interest in all making sure all the, system, all the citizens have a vested interest in quality qualifications speaks to 
uh, this willingness uh, to have a situation where ignorance flows to a society. Of course, you not understand that having massive ignorance is never good in society. But as far as the capitalists are concerned, ignorance is a very, very good thing because it ensures their longevity. Because if people are not educated to understand how things work, then it makes it much easier for the capitalists to manipulate, uh, to use and abuse, and to take advantage of. And so, therefore, having people uneducated is in their interest. So that's very, all very, very problematic. But in closing, Brother Africa, I just want to say, I just, I just want to make sure people understand that simply because you're born under capitalism doesn't make you a capitalist. Uh, one of the things is, is, a, is, a, is a mindset, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, to do things simply because it's the capitalist way of doing things, to me, is unintelligent. It seems to me it makes more sense if you understand that things that are, quote, unquote, capitalist, uh, things are very, very destructive in terms of uh, in terms of the essence, then it seems to me those kind of things should be rejected. So if I have a situation, uh, you know, inevitably, you know, where uh, I create conditions in which people grew up and were feeling hopeless, were feeling powerless, and understanding inevitably is going to lead to the, the, the demise of the society because people don't have a vested interest in the society. So for me, just from an intelligent point of view, it doesn't make sense to create a kind of society that does that. But that's precisely what capitalism does. And so for anybody who embraces that, uh, I don't know what to say, but clearly there are those in the community who do not embrace that kind of mindset. So I'm going to be very, very clear on that point. Uh, you know, because earlier it was stated that uh, because you were born in an capitalist system that you inherited or you identify with a capitalist mindset. And that, that's not true. I just wanted to spell that myth. Uh, but having said that, Brother Africa, as always, you know, I uh, encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, and the situation is, is, the situation is becoming very, very um, uh, precarious for lots and lots of people, increasing itself. The question is, for the government, of course, is what you can do with all of these people that you have no use for. And the question for the people is, because the government has no use for you, uh, do you understand just how precarious your situation is? And what are you going to do in terms of organization to be in a position to actually be able to fight back? Because inevitably, the system has no other choice but to find some kind of way in terms of dealing with you, whether we're talking about mass incarceration, just outright killing you or whatever, but they have to have some means in which to control large, increasing number of people who don't, who will not have access to jobs, who will not access to education, who will not have access to shelter. So all those things are problematic, and the question is, what are we going to do as a people? So we, so we have to think seriously about what it means in terms of how the system operates, how it's organized, and its tenets or the philosophy that guides the society. And as always, Brother Africa, you have a good night, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Brother Haki. And all the things you mentioned are things in which the U.S. are in violation of one's human rights. Next going to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night. The mic is yours. For me, Brother Africa. Uh, uh, let's see. My final thought for tonight is that uh, in light of what is going on today, it is important that Africans at home and in the diaspora organize as never before. We need to achieve Pan-Africanism in order to solve the problems that are confronting African people worldwide and, uh, and uh, humanity in general. Uh, you can, uh, people can find out more about Pan-Africanism by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org where in addition to uh, 
uh, finding out about uh, br- br- uh, Brother Bob Brown's uh, book. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, you can also find out about the history of Pan-Africanism and the history of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. And please check that website out. And uh, there's a lot of information that's ver- uh, that that's uh, available about the solution to the problems that confront us as a people worldwide. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. And just to reinforce, Brother Bob Brown's book on the Pan-African Roots, Volume 1 and 2, title is, We Demand the Full Disclosure indigenization of all slavery era records. You can get it by going to the website that Anthony just gave you, www.a-aprp.gc.org. Also, there's a reminder that Africa on the Move in conjunction with many other organizations under the banner of the African Awareness Association, we come and tell you, come and see Robert J. Cuba for yourself. There will be a Black History, Education, and Culture Travel Challenge Tour to Cuba. It will take place July 23rd to the 31st, 2022. I'm leaving from Cancun for more information. Please go to the website, www.aaa-cubatours.com or email them at African Awareness Association 2 at Gmail. So come and join this freedom ride on our way to Cuba. And just as a reminder again, it's important to uh, us be aware of those who claim to represent us and who are influencing our community. So if you do get a chance, please check out Political. The last article we discussed titled White House, Build Bridges with Some of the Black Community's Most Powerful Group. If they are that powerful, then they should be able to get some things done. If not, that it's just a reality of the illusion of power, and that really power itself. So until next time, we're going to be in the seat, and we're going to take the heat as we define it. We're going to stand behind it. This has been Africa on the Move. We'll see you next week. Please spread the word. If you'd like to support us, email us at Africa on the Move 2 Gmail, and we can tell you how you can do that. Until next time, like always, Let's strive to go forward, ever, back wherever. Remember, Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all Africans free. We'll see you next week, same time, same station. So I leave you with the music, Not Yet You, that means we are not yet free. This has been Africa on the Moon.
my journey yeah, and made it through my journey yeah 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 With our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, dedicating, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. We here are revolutionaries, and we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. You must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say, politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says, any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the all-African people's revolutionary party, they tell people all the time, don't you all go listen to them. They're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture. He was crazy in the 60s. He's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane. That's clear. <laughs> 
They said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black. Ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold. Ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry. Ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like, I did a little cheating on the test. <laughs> Either you believe in God or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make middle ground, said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped believing in God. There is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed, and you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people, by your very active inactions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that, I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. If your people are being raped and you're looking at television, enjoying your time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides itself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> so my mama. I know what I'm talking about. She belittles Cuba because Cuba's a poor country. Big that. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. <laughs> so they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. Right. Right. I'm not confused. When they called me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy, give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> You got, you got him. <laughs> so I never got confused with them. No. But the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whoop them on half a bowl. <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out, you always planning. Look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. But Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. situation. Cuba is a poor country, of that there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, 
every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba's a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education, not a penny. When you look at poor Cuba and see its concerns for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they picket Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> well, Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire him up. Shoot them all.